Pilot TV podcast this week, we're looking for true love in Amazon Prime's new anthology drama, Soulmates, investigating a true crime mystery in The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel on Netflix, and taking a look at Adam Curtis's brain-straining new iPlayer series, Can't Get You Out of My Head. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that is thrilled to have been nominated for a Golden Globe Award this week in the category of basically anything that isn't I May Destroy You. <laughs> and speaking of things that are entirely absurd and wildly out of touch with their audience, I am once again joined by my two co-hosts, the Mulder and Scully of modern TV journalism, Terry White and Boyd Hilton. How goes it? Good. I don't want to be that person, but it's it's the Cecil Hotel, isn't it? Let's face no, it. Only if you're American. Only no, if you're American. I've, no. I've I've written it down phonetically on my notes. Oh, I'm because, not ceasing uh, it because there Cecil. is at least one English person on that show who says Cecil, and I'm like, God bless you, God okay. bless you for not conforming and saying Cecil. <laughs> that random bad person who sold their story and basically walked up in down outside the hotel during said disappearance <laughs> yeah. to try I mean, and get on American television. Sure. Maybe yeah. not the Can best role model. But... <laughs> the dreadful people in this documentary. Let's jump straight into what we've been watching. And Terry, Terry, let's get straight into the Telly for Terry segment. Uh, did you watch the pilot of the newsroom? And if so, how did it go? Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that was the Telly for Terry segment. I hope you enjoyed that. Why not? <laughs> um, because um, uh, I spent... Two nights this week, working till one in the morning on uh, Empire Magazine Press, not right. seeing my child at all, um, and only watching the telly that we are going to talk about today and The West Wing. So I greatly apologise, um, but now I have my life back again, I'm going to watch it this weekend and spend time with my son, I should say. <laughs> I mean, it's worth mentioning, we did, in fact, record our West Wing special this week. It ran in at, I, I, I suspect by the time I've cut it down, it'll be two and a half hours. So it'll be a little bit, little bit, oh, a little bit tighter. Two and a, a mere two and a half Nothing. hours. Well, we recorded for over two. We How did, much yes. Sorkin are you using? I, I, I'm going to use about half an hour. I'm going to use about half an hour of Aaron Sorkin and then the rest us rambling on about things so there's uh there's a lot of good stuff in there as as you've just heard aaron sorkin will be uh will be appearing to talk about the west wing and we will be banging on about it at some length so uh i highly recommend you keep an eye out for that i mean i think i think two and a half hours is perfectly in proportionate to the importance of this cultural artifact that is the west wing. i mean chris Hewitt does like eight hours on one mission impossible film that's so, very I mean, true so that's very on. true no i I'm, I'm in no way i no way feel guilty about it i do not believe it is in any way self-indulgent or you know about me <laughs> So that's, uh... <laughs> any of those things we're ever accused of. <laughs> um, I will say, though, that that sadly is pretty much one of the only things I've watched this week is The West Wing, ridiculously, because uh, ahead of the uh, the Spoiler Special podcast, I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to watch the pilot, and then I watch the second one, and then I watch mm. the third one, and then I watch the fourth one, and then I watch the fifth one. I'm now on the sixth one, and I feel, Terry, you might have inadvertently kickstarted me into another West Wing rewatch. I'm so, glad. I will do my absolute best not to narrate it week by week on this podcast, just for the sake of everyone who's had to just hear oh, you. That would be amazing if you. Sorry. That would be amazing if we followed. <laughs> if we followed Terry's <laughs> weekly update on her rewatch, her watch, her first watch. You banging on about your various rewatches. I mean, you re well, you rewatched the whole thing, didn't you? In time with the West Wing Weekly podcast. Oh yeah, I do it. I do it quite so regularly. So when did that finish? That was only finished about what a year ago, maybe. And now you'd be back on another rewatch of it. Yeah, that yeah. Would, that would be that would be brilliant. 
Yeah, no, but that, that's mainly the only other things I have watched this week. I will say is I watched the finale of The Expanse, which let me tell you did not disappoint. In <laughs> fact, I watched it until two in the morning because I was like, I, I must see it before it gets spoiled on Twitter. I must see it, and uh, I, I finally finished that, and then I immediately went out and dropped fifty quid on the entire book box set. So I've got all the James S. A. Corey Expanse novels now to tide me over until the final season, season six, drops uh, in Christmas this year. So oh, it was a hell of a finale, and I love every second of it um also i will say the most recent episode of wandavision which is episode five i want to say and oh my god it was amazing so that may i think be the best episode yet and i obviously can't talk about it in any meaningful way but i will say that we will be talking about it at length on the empire spoiler special podcast uh which we do weekly for wandavision so i do recommend you listen to that it's worth noting that if you don't already subscribe to our spoiler special podcast, you can sign up now at the new lower price of just $2.99 a month. So do visit empireonline.com slash spoiler specials to do that. Um, well, it sounds like I'm the only person who's watched any actual TV outside does, of yeah. the, uh, yeah. the, um, the assigned programming for this week. I've, I've watched quite a lot. Apart from, I did watch, also catch up on loads of West Wing episodes, but we've, we've, we've done that. Um, apart from the, the aforementioned Hanforth Parish Council, the full version, which is over an hour long on YouTube, you see many people talking about it. It's now become viral. By the time this goes out on Monday, the whole nation will be talking about Jackie Weaver. This actual real-life Parish Council meeting uh, that is a bit like an episode of Inside Number Nine meets a Victoria Wood play um, has gone out um, on has become viral, viral on Twitter and um, it's basically an hour over an hour of of genuine parish council activity and political shenanigans and people getting furious and shouting at each other and um, the main thing is Jackie Weaver who's the woman who tries to get, keep the whole thing um, going was on um, Woman's Hour this morning on Radio 4 talking about it. she's become a superstar and a phenomenon people are saying she should be the next Prime Minister and it's all <laughs> and it's all got brilliantly out of hand in classic um, modern day uh, culture uh style but it is an amazing hour of footage and i'm considering it to be tv and um <laughs> I, I'm recommending that everyone watches it if you haven't there's an edited version of the highlights but i feel the full hour and eight minutes or something you get the absolute proper joy of it because some of the people involved because it's mainly involving older people shall we say and some of them aren't on mute some of them are on mute some of their some of their cameras are working some of them aren't and it's absolutely astonishing um so there's that then i've also finally um watched um the investigation which was a show that we really should have reviewed mm. um when mm. it came out a few weeks ago i think it was the week of it's a sin and um we just didn't really have time to do everything that came out that week but so it's um it's on bbc it's been on bbc two um it, it will have finished by the time the podcast goes out so it's all on iplayer it's a dramatization of a real life case in which a journalist called kim val a uh, Swedish journalist was murdered when she was reporting on a story of a private submarine which this um, kind of entrepreneur um, built and um, kind of lived and worked in. And she was kind of um, just kind of doing a story on what the hell this weird private submarine was all about and the guy who owned it and everything. And she was murdered during that. And then it's this is an HBO um, production and it's uh, BBC Two acquired it. And it's so... It's done in a very, very particularly meticulous, low-key way. So the drama is, it focuses on the investigation, hence the title. So the main policeman, it focuses on him, who's a really kind of quiet, methodical professional. It's incredibly unshowy and it's incredibly tasteful. And it actually forms a very interesting contrast to the true crime documentary we're reviewing later. Because this is as sober and kind of dignified as 
well, we'll see what we think of that true crime documentary later. Then some true crime documentaries, which are very, which I feel, you know, kind of use all the tricks in the book to make it, to make make the situation melodramatic and kind of slightly over the top. This one, and it, and it, and it, things like it doesn't name the main killer the, who, for very particular reasons because it focuses solely on the victim, the police investigating it, the parents of the victim. And it, so it's all about how a murder affects everyone else and and the be- and to not highlight and to not make famous the person who committed the crime so it's very, it's a fascinating but it's just it's really riveting from the start it's really well done um so yeah the investigation on bbc iplayer now and i too loved one division and thought it was the best episode so far and i'm life <laughs> yeah terry a couple of our um, i was just going to say a couple of our listeners have actually recommended the um, yeah. the investigation i've got it i've got it lined up for this weekend yeah so. you will love it I am guaranteed <laughs> you will love it. Yeah. That noise was me rubbing my hands together just in case there's <laughs> <Yeah>. any confusion <laughs> as to what that was. Wow. <laughs> this has gone in an unexpected direction. Well, okay. I guess that's what we've been doing over the past uh, week or so. So let's move on now to this week's listener question. And this week's listener question comes from Matt. And Matt says... Have any viewing habits changed as you've matured, steady Matt, uh, and has the invention of bingeable TV reduced your tolerance for 22-episode American series? Terry, of course, will now give you a five-minute screed about how she doesn't watch anything she doesn't want to watch, and all her shows are brilliant. Isn't that right, Terry? No, I I was wondering, though, if if my habits had changed. I used to be... I suppose bad at watching a lot of what may be considered rubbish in a binge addictive way. So I'm thinking about when I used to watch things like Intervention, which I've talked about on this podcast before. Uh, I'm very um, into formulaic shows. It's why I like SVU. Procedurals, things where, you know, where you know the setup. Intervention has the exact same narrative set up. Every single episode, the only thing that's different is the person and their story. Um, And I've always found those really comforting to watch. And there was probably a point where I was spending far too much of my spare time watching those shows instead of taking a a risk on something um, brilliant and and more unusual. And, And I don't think it's getting older. I think it's doing this podcast quite honestly has opened my eyes to lots of tv um and also having less time so now i have a child actually i'm much more kind of protective of that time and i don't want to waste seven hours on something that might be trash um so i think i am much more um picky about what i watch but the question about you know, 25, 22 episode um, series, it's actually done the opposite for me binging because what the West Wing, I loved the fact that the West Wing had 22 episodes per season. I loved those 156 episodes and it felt like such a difference because now when I look at series that are sometimes six episodes, actually, a lot of them, um, 10 max, it feels like they're this one big hit that you do and then they're gone. That's it. And actually the relationship you form with something like The West Wing over that many episodes and that many hours of TV, I really appreciate that as something special now. And it made me, watching The West Wing, made me long for those kind of series again. I think there's a a place and all of that for... um, the former, so the teacher, no, sorry, a teacher, I thought was the perfect example of when that worked. That was one kind of complete story, 
told in one series, boom, boom, boom. But if you think about what the West Wing managed to achieve in one season, the amount of storytelling they covered, the growth of the characters, the number of things they delved into, that was, you know, in many respects, that's kind of like four seasons of somebody else or three seasons of another show. So I think um, it's made me appreciate those big, epic huge number series of telly even more that we now live in a binge culture with shorter seasons it's interesting that you've weaned yourself slightly off the procedurals and there's something i guess i guess i say i guess because i don't share it the appeal of procedurals is there's a level of control you can exert over them that they're comforting and that you know exactly what the defined parameters of the shows are there's no curveballs nothing's going to throw you you know what you're getting it's on the tin yeah, it's like a warm bath. So, like, it's a warm bath. It's that thing I've got three hours. I just want to feel not very challenged. And it is it is control, it's safety, it's security. It's all of those things. But increasingly, I also see it as a waste of uh, valuable time when there's so much brilliant telly still to be watched. But it is weaning off, I have to say. Like, mm. the other night, I um, I was uh, had a couple, like, an hour and a half during dinner, and I was like, fuck it, I'm going to watch um, one and a half SBUs. <laughs> and I felt a bit bad afterwards and I haven't done that in, in ages. And then I was like, oh God, should I? I well, I couldn't watch um, uh, the newsroom because I couldn't concentrate because I was having to feed my son at the same time. Um, but yeah, it's definitely weaning off because it becomes a habit. And then you just, I used to go to sleep to SVU. I used to watch two episodes of SVU in bed every night is the thing to send me to sleep which some people may think what goes on in I mean, SVU should haunt your dreams. But <laughs> I used to find it soothing. I used to find it soothing and I couldn't sleep without it on in the background. That's it's really funny. Like I, but I, I've always, not always actually, because I also used to watch procedurals. Like I used to watch CSI. I used to watch Criminal Minds. I used to watch lots of them. But I do wonder whether that was less because I liked procedurals or more because procedurals were what there was. Like there wasn't mm. a lot mm. of other things. Like ongoing art-based dramas are not an entirely new, you know, confection but they are prevalent now in a way that they didn't used to be because it used to be very much that networks would put out content networks in particular would put out content that they knew that if they had an ongoing arc if someone missed two episodes they'd probably lost that viewer because they'll have lost the thread they won't be able to pick it up again and they'll never come back which was something like csi it was the perfect formula you can jump in two episodes into a season you can jump in five seasons into the show it makes no fucking difference because there's no character growth there are no developments nothing changes it is always the same shit and I think that like, they love that stuff. And I think it's only more recently they've realized the power of ongoing narratives. But I used to watch, I mean, look at Star Trek. Star Trek is basically procedural through most of it. It wasn't until Deep Space Nine that they really leaned into art-based storytelling. And even that was quite late in the day. So, you know, I, I, I had a lot of tolerance for it. But now, exactly as you say, I look at procedurals as just a waste of life. Like there's no purpose to them. They don't <clears> go anywhere. There's no growth. There's no development. It's just, I don't feel that, you watch an episode, I've not accomplished anything. I've not progressed the story. I've not got anywhere. And there's there's a futility to procedurals that really bothers me. And they actually annoy me to the point where I just refuse to watch them. <laughs> That's so funny. You're, that is so like ridiculous that the idea there's no point to it. Yes. The point is to be entertained and to <laughs> yeah. be and to be delighted and to be, you know. I see, moved. I do get what you're saying. But the thing is the procedurals that I've always enjoyed and X Fast, let's be honest, is another procedural. But the things that always that I always loved about I thought the great procedurals were the ones with enough connective tissue that they would have a thread, sometimes a very powerful thread, that runs through the procedural format. And a lot of them do this, like this is not a new thing. It's 
was like when uh, when Tom Ellis was on talking about Lucifer. It's like no one gives a shit about the day-to-day procedural. All they care about is the ongoing relationship between him and the cop. Do you know what I mean? And the detective. Mm. Like that's that's the the meat of the show. And and I think that's what appeals to me. But again, I think it depends on what you're going into these things for. So one of the reasons that I love uh, TV more than I love film, and I can say this, I do love TV more than I love film. Now, what? There, no, absolutely true. But let me explain to you why. Like, don't get me wrong. There is nothing <laughs> on earth that compare apart from the West Wing. There is nothing on earth that compares to going to the cinema and watching Endgame or a Star Wars movie or that. Like, that is my, you know, that's my happy place. But the thing with me is like TV, film, you know, visual drama. It's all about escapism for me, and escapism means severing ties with the world you're in and inhabiting another world for a period of time. And the problem with most movies is you've got 90 minutes, you've got 120 minutes, but your stay in that world is limited and then they kick you out again. The thing with TV shows is you can stay for fucking ages. <laughs> like You've got hundreds of hours of this stuff and you can spend this time with these characters in this world, in this universe that you've created. It's why I read fantasy novels that are like 15 volumes long. It's the same thing. I need to be with these characters because I will mourn them when they're gone. It's like I've lost a friend. It's like someone's died. I'm bereaved. Mm. and the nature of my escapism means I need to be able to share this space with them for as much time as humanly possible but I need that space to evolve it has to be an ongoing narrative that draws me in and once it no longer draws me in I no longer want to essentially stay with them so that's a that's a small window into my psychology for you <laughs> it's a, yeah I mean I agree with you to some extent I think I don't agree with your thing about procedurals being you know, you're a waste kind of, of inherent, life. Yeah, it'd be a waste of time. It's the same with sitcoms. That's that is the other reason. That's the the, the thing. Depends the other- on the sitcom, though, because Seinfeld was like that certainly. But Friends definitely had growth and momentum and movement, and it was in the relationships of the characters and how they evolved. Mm. And it might even be subplots when they each of them developed relate. Like Paul Rudd would come in, like there's a thread, oh, thread there. Like it is like no, life no, moved Seinfeld on in Friends. Seinfeld did that as well. Connective tissue. This thing that Seinfeld did that as well has has ongoing arcs. It's, 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 no it's, hugging, no learning. Like yeah, their yeah, ethos. Yeah. I know, but that's different. That that's like the. I mean, there was also you know, it's a show about nothing was the famous phrase about it. But of course, it wasn't. And it, no, it was and a show about people. Was, thank for, the no hugging thing, of course. Thank fuck for that. I mean, no one is no one is hugging. <laughs> but what I mean is the idea of the connective tissue and the and the bigger story arcs. While at the same time, you're you're watching a show in a format that you can completely enjoy episode by episode every week in its own self-contained thing where basically the characters don't particularly grow and develop that is what sitcom is generally all about and yeah. i think friends it wasn't the fact they didn't grow and develop did they i mean they kind of you know that things happened to them over the long term and relationships formed and split apart but i don't i'm not sure if they're any particularly they're particularly learned or developed or grown Obviously, i disagree anymore. i think all of those characters had enormous growth yeah, and i well, think i think a lot of it even was if not they for did, the better okay even um, if they did <laughs> even if they did even if you're right who gives a shit i do that's not why i like friends you know that's not why genuinely that's not why no, friends is it's brilliant. fucking funny yeah right exactly thank you so that's the point about sitcoms yes. generally the point yes. is the characters don't need to grow but, right but what you're that, talking about is, yeah. is the same thing. It's that sense that you're not there for the narrative. When you watch Friends, you are there because the emotional state it puts you in of happiness, of laughter is good. Yes. Now, yes. thinking, if you're me, like humorless twat me, like that's, you know, that's maybe something that I don't get from sitcoms a lot. I need to be much more invested in a Like sure. Ted Lasso, I yep. was there in that story. The drama, the story sucked me in. And that it was funny and good-natured worked on a whole other level for me. But I was there for that world and that story. Yeah, but that's a 
slightly different thing. Right. It the is. sweet spot, the sweet spot for me is 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 both. Is when is when a show soars to the point and it takes time. Yes. It takes time. Yes. It soars to the point where you absolutely loving it as a weekly thing that is giving you it be it procedural or sitcom or whatever. It's 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 tying those two things together. Ha- my favorite binge watch of all time in my life, right? And including all the best things ever made is House. So House, really? yes, because I had I did not watch House at all like live. When I went, I watched the first episode. No. I thought this is really good. Yeah. I don't need to watch anymore. <laughs> I did the same thing, right? And so I I then watched all whatever seven seasons of it. I was pre- seasons of it. I actually was given the box. I was sent the box. I was like, right, I'm going to devour this, and I loved that experience. I w- I would be watching seven eight episodes in a in a day, wow. and I'd be staying up till two three in the morning, and I, it was addictive. It's so addictive that show. And it is a procedural, but the arcs in House were so beautifully wrought and the special episodes which weren't procedural and were just House being House or interacting with, you know, his his on-off part thing all, all those things were what made it incredible the, the the mingling of the procedural with the big huge story arcs and i found that incredibly satisfying and that makes done. me want to watch it because i watched the first one that so stopped, and then i actually watched most of the first season later on yeah but then stopped and one of the reasons i stopped is i, I was and it was just that thing in my head life's too short for procedural so i just can't be dealing with this but i do wonder like maybe there's something more for me or maybe it was just that it was a procedural that put me off rather than the show itself yeah yeah and because house has the thing that terry's talking about that the, the comfort thing right house does that because it's the procedure the procedure is this genius doctor is going to solve the mystery <laughs> yeah, and he's yeah. going to find yeah. the diagnosis which he does every single fucking week pretty much but there's no crime so it's like actually i mean i love crime dramas don't get me wrong i'm not judging anyone who does <laughs> but if you really want if you want the procedure without that element of it then you've got it in house because it how it's house house is so comforting it brings order to the universe and we're going to get on later to whether there is order in the universe but <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> for me it's like the most comforting binge watch i've ever had in my mm. life house and and, I, and it was brilliantly written it was one of those shows that was kind of taken for granted but with hugh laurie and the writers doing that working absolutely at their utmost to make it but believable and funny and witty it's funny all the way through um it was incredible so but what but going back to the question why i'm, tra- why I'm using that as example is i i i haven't changed particularly partly because my job is to watch kind of the f- everything everything as it starts and then decide whether i n- want to carry on but i do think the world has changed there are very, mm. far fewer of, think of it sitcoms there are you know, there used to be, you know, there was a point where we were watching Frasier, Friends, Seinfeld, God knows what else, all at the same time. I was anyway, you know, in the, in the 90s or whatever, and enjoying 22 episodes of those all throughout the year and being obsessively watching every single one. Like, I don't now, there isn't one American sitcom that I watch now religiously, you know, I think, yeah. and I think American networks are making fewer of them, you know, mm. it's much more, it's much harder to get. And when they get one that works, like Modern Family only recently finished. Right, Modern Family. I really like Modern Family, but I, there's no way, in terms of pure quality of writing, that it was like Friends for me or, or or those very best ones. But it was really enjoyable, and I know people who who, who watch Modern Family in a comforting way because there are 22 episodes of series they went on for years and years and years. So it does happen, but it's definitely rarer, I think, now. So, and I think it's equally rare that American um, network shows. They find the ones that have that will reach that sweet spot. So, 
consequently when they are ones that they make so that's why there are so many csis and so many you know yeah. so many um chicago Lord orders and chicago yeah one that works is then milked hugely <laughs> um for the rest of time um yeah. so just tv has changed a bit and and now and i think it's brilliant i think i i do think we're as you know the whole point of this podcast but it is that all, all of those things are better as well it better made technically you know the, so even the network procedurals now are like unbelievably beautifully made and slickly mm. done and you know so um i think that, i think that i think the industry has changed and there's there's a much more emphasis on finding binge worthy stuff and there's a whole debate going on about it's weird that the bbc and itv now put their stuff out as it goes out live weekly they also put it on as box sets of which people find that really weird and bewildering and slightly wrong um it's a sin of course it's a sin is um, a pop culture phenomenon. I think because you could watch the whole thing as soon as it went out that yeah. Friday night on Channel 4, and Russell on the on our podcast talked about how he thinks it absolutely worked as a binge, a five-hour binge, yeah. effectively. And so, and yeah, at the same time, you know, people are loving it as a weekly thing. So I just think the whole world has, has changed for the better and making all those things, um, you know, available to watch in whatever way you, in whatever way you like. Yeah, I used to do exactly as you did. Like I, I used to make a point of watching every single pilot which now is mm. just not even possible because there's just no. the volume of it is insane. But there was a point, you know, like about 15 years ago where that was doable. Um, and I also used to, even before that, when I was uh, back, when I was sort of living at home, I guess when I was a teenager, I used to get this, this TV guide, not the TV guide. I can't remember what it was called, but it used to cover all the satellite channels. And I used to go through when I got the new one with a highlighter and highlight all the new shows and all the film stuff that I wanted to watch throughout <laughs> oh, the month. And I would amazing. watch the amount of shit like Brimstone and stuff that I've just watched yeah. endless amounts of because I think I worked on that magazine, wherever it was. Called, <laughs> I bet you yeah. did as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, it was a sense that, and we've talked about this before, that the kind of stuff that we would spend endless hours watching and love in the 90s is stuff that were we to review on this podcast today, we wouldn't give time a day and we'd never watch another episode because the quality of television has advanced so yeah. dramatically that it can't help but evolve the way you watch TV because the quality has changed, the format has changed, the way you even approach, the fact that television now is, you know, Nicole Kidman just focuses on TV because she's like, this is where mm. the creativity is at. This is where I have the freedom to explore the stories I want to explore. And it's, you know, it's an incredible medium and it's no longer sort of sneered at by quote unquote proper actors. You know, all of that, all of that changed since 2000 and it's been a, in a gradual evolution to where we are now. And I think, you know, the, the increase in quality has changed. I think the binge thing that Matt mentioned is, is an interesting one because House of Cards really threw me. I remember that was the first show I remember actually being like, oh, and Sleeper Cell Season 2, weirdly, was another one that all dropped in one go. But House of Cards in particular, I remember watching the whole thing through and finding it a really strange sensation to watch the whole thing in one go. Like, I wasn't quite... Sh like, it, it really, really threw me. And obviously the show is structured around that. It's designed around watching it in, in, you know, in huge chunks like that. But that really changed the way I appreciate TV. And now... Now, and we've talked about it in this podcast before, like because I'm Captain Instant Gratification, I want to watch everything now. I want my whole show mm. binged at all times. Mm. Like I've um I've been lucky enough to see most of season two of Snowpiercer, which I can't talk about because it's embargoed, uh, until the final couple of episodes. And I on the one hand, I had a roaring weekend binging through it, but on the other hand, I'm now gonna wait till fucking April to see how it ends and it's killing oh, me. Oh, you're so spoiled. Everyone else listens to this is like, <laughs> yeah. how come James has seen the whole thing when we have to do watch it weekly on fucking but, Netflix? But do you know what I mean? But that's a show that I think really lends itself to binging. And I'm sure Netflix would drop it in one go if they could, but it's obviously it's, it's a TNT show, they can't actually do that. But I think that is a show that hundred percent should and could be binged. One division, on the other hand, 
would be a horrific binge watch because that show is the lost of its time. It's an evolving mystery. It's a water cooler show. You want to be able to share those moments with your friends. You want to call them up on a Friday and go, oh my fucking Christ, did you see what just happened? And now let's go listen to the Empire Spoiler Special Podcast where they talk about it for an hour and a half. Do you know what I mean? That's what you want. Yeah. And I do think these two things can coexist. It's a sin. Again, it's something you want to watch through, through all in one go. And I, I, you know, I get the BBC giving people options. If you want to watch it weekly yeah, with friends, do that. Yeah, they if you have don't, to. if you want to watch it one go, do that. I think that's great. Give people the freedom. Yeah, I think, and also, I think when people complain about, I think it tends to, I think it tends to be older people like me who complain <laughs> yeah. about, you know. But really, Grr, I think they, get off my lawn. The kids, the younger people, expect they expect you, uh, for better or worse. Yeah. But it's a cultural phenomenon. Entitled millennials. Entitled millennials <laughs> expect to be able to watch a whole series in one go. It's just the I'm way it works, them. and that is down to Netflix. And yeah. before. Well, to be fair to Netflix, I mean that is their USP. That was their USP from the start. And yes. I remember talking yes. to Ted Sarandos in a you know in a private meeting saying, "Are you Co- ever going to allow <laughs> any creator to do a weekly?" And he was like, "No. If you sign up to Netflix, you have to it has to be all in one go. Apart from their acquisitions, as you yeah. say, like Snowpiss, yeah. which yeah. have no power over." But yeah. I hate that. But I hate that because I think um, to, to to completely take away yeah, from filmmakers. And because pacing and rhythm and the way they carve up that storytelling, TV is episodic for a reason, right? And that's not to say every TV show should be watched in a certain rhythm or pace. It's that filmmakers, when they're putting these things together, will be thinking about how this is like watched and consumed and enjoyed. And to take that away from them completely, Michaela Cole's scenario, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that's only one yeah, reason, yeah. I'm sure, because, you know, they were also wouldn't let her retain any control over it whatsoever. To take that away from people and say, we are, we have said anybody who watches on our platform has to be able to binge. I think it's massively disrespectful. And I think it also just undermines, it, it feels like they don't understand almost like what television is at that point. Because of course there are some things that are better off binged or, or aren't impacted by the fact you watch nine on the go but you know the way that it was really important to Michaela Cole how she dropped I May Destroy You and the use of when I interviewed her she talked about the use of pause and actually how especially with something about trauma having kind of those moments of enforced pause and why shouldn't she get to ever say how how it drops like I think the arrogance no offence Ted, to, <laughs> Ted um, but I just find that gobsmacking I, and I, I agree, think it, 100%. it really yeah. don't you think uh, it totally, just undermi- but- undermines it's the way t- t- storytellers tell stories yeah. like but it's purely it's you know what it's purely the brand and and I have yeah. to say it's worked because if they'd have diluted that brand with even, you know, if mine fucking Scorsese or whatever come along and said, I've got a 10-part thing, but I'm going to do it weekly. and But because they are now, Netflix is the brand associated with binge viewing, even though Amazon do it, of course. Who yeah. All of them do it. To ver- when sometimes they do All the other all the other streaming services are less rigidly they attached. They pick and choose. Like the they expanse choose. on Amazon is, exactly. is episodic. Exactly. Un- mm. Annoyingly. So, but it has meant that Netflix is absolutely 100% associated by the kids, Netflix and chill. That's the phrase it's not amazon and chill it's not hulu and chill you know and the reason for that is because they were absolutely 100 percent went for it i gotta and, be honest and- with you boy people who are netflix and chilling <laughs> i'm not sure are focusing on the television I know, no, no, but one, my point is that phrase is that phrase for a reason. Well, no, but I think it's it's worked for them in some respects, but they'll also have lost people yeah. from a you know they they will forever be the place that Michaela Cole walked away from. Oh yeah, sure, right, and sure. that's that's what people associate with. I may destroy you, 
And I think there is a sense of respect respect the artists who were working with you, who were, you know, this is this is their work and their stories to tell. And especially I think when it's something personal like Michaela Cole's story, um, which was, you know, based in part on on an experience she'd had. Fuck you, Netflix. Tell me what to do. Like, honestly, <laughs> I don't, I, and I, know, I understand I it's the, it's the purity of their brand message. I get that, but I think you know, if that's what they're going for, then well done, you've done it. But also, um, you've you've you can't be see, or you you just wouldn't want to be completely dismissive of how creators wanted to present their work. I would hope. Yeah, of course. But I think they'll turn around and One go, well, we've got hope. 200, 200 million <laughs> subscribers and we've just put the price up and no yeah. one gives a shit because we are, uh, you know. So, it has worked yeah. for them. But also, it's again, it goes to their their whole core message. It's value, isn't it? It's volume and value. Mm. And being able to drop all those episodes at once gives an incredible sense of, of, of value and, and value for money in, in subscribing to them. That said, you know, they have learned an awful lot. We've talked about it before. The early Marvel shows were a prime example of how to do binge watching wrong, to take a yeah. six-hour story and spread it over 13 hours and make you sit through all that tedious shit. No, thank you. Oh, I mean, there's a whole book to be written or maybe an article to be written about, <laughs> and I'm sure that they have, in fact, about the, the, the effect on storytelling of streaming services. Yeah. And it's not, mm. and it can, and, mm. and the excess baggage on, mm. on many, many, many overlong um series particularly dramas on is a, is a massive thing i think and i still haven't learned from it they still you know yeah. they still commission 10 and i think they're probably beginning to learn because i don't think they'd do 13 episodes of a marvel series now <laughs> on netflix but you know there's still so many overlong, overlong series. But that it's just... storytelling has always fit the container that's in, isn't it? The way cable shows are one uninterrupted yeah. narrative, the way network shows are four act structures to fit around the ad breaks, and the way binge bingeable shows tend to be written in such a way that the episodes flow naturally into each other, so you can watch it for as long or as little as you want. But I think it's it's getting to that point where, and I think they're learning it now. It's to make because you have freedom on streaming services, it, instead of trying to fit your story as people are used to do around the broadcast format, it's to use that to tell the story you need to tell. And we've used the example of the OA, where if you want to wait 45 minutes till the title sequence, you do whatever the fuck you want. If you want to make an episode 25 minutes just because that's the story you want to tell in that chunk, just do it. And like even WandaVision this morning, like the runtimes of that show very massively because they can mm -hmm. in a way that network TV shows couldn't even vary by like 30 seconds. Uh, and it does give huge freedom. But not freedom if if you're then told um, this has to be written in a way that would be suitable for bin for binging and that's and there so it's like oh complete freedom as long as it also because if you were gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep using the example of I may destroy you if that was written to be bingeable I think it would have been a completely different show she'd have had to make it a completely different show yeah. and it would have been consumed completely differently the reaction I think would have been different like the, the pacing and rhythm people <laughs> there are still there are yeah. still constraints but it's funny isn't it because fam yeah, Netflix famously don't give notes to creatives I mean they let them do whatever the well, fuck I they want within no their notes. within I'm their can within their core constraints and for TV shows, that is, it will all drop at once. And here's the thing, though, right, is people are always like um, anti-notes and, and studio interference and all of that. But I think it's fair to say that 
in in history there are examples of good notes being made mm, and true. filmmakers have often had checks and balances to kind of have a counterbalance because to stop indulgences potentially not that i have a specific directory in mind but they you know and those things have existed for a reason and this sense of oh well they can do whatever they want kind of without that creative tension i don't think it's it's an entirely good thing because those notes, if you look at some of the, you know, most either difficult or volatile or long running kind of productions in history, you end up with the film you end up with because of that process. Um, And I think the kind of sense of as long as you want, do it like that, that isn't necessarily a blanket good thing absolutely Although, and also what would you rather yeah. have and it, first of all it's a myth by the way that they don't give notes yeah. that no they I don't are, think it's no okay, no no, right. no, no but they're not going like I mean, we need Sam and Josh in boats saving the Cubans sure. you know it's not that but, level of oversight but what would you rather have notes from your network or, or, or commissioning people or for your series to be axed after one or two series because yeah. we didn't give you any fucking notes okay that's fair but also it, it, there's a quality control aspect to it in the same way that when you have uh, you know self-published authors versus traditionally published authors you know, self-published authors, with a few exceptions, are just desperately in need of a good editor. Uh, and yeah. you would hope that, uh, you know, whether it be executive producer, you would hope there would be a level of oversight there. But what you don't want is that classic sort of suit interference where they don't get what the storyteller is trying to do and they try and make it into something that they want to be able to sell. Yeah, but that, that that's very binary, right? You're you're thinking well, of I thought like, you'd appreciate that, Terry. You're, you're thinking about Mr. Massive Dickhead sat in the boardroom <laughs> thinking about, you know, his dollar signs. And there's a, there's a world of difference between that. The big studios, the big five, have always had execs who are brilliant at what they do and understand um, what audiences want. And there's a reason, apart from money, that filmmakers work with big studios um, who, you know, think about Jim currently at Paramount. He is a classic kind of exec who is known within Hollywood for working brilliantly and collaborating with with filmmakers. So I don't think it's just, you know, money guy in the corner going, oh my God, <laughs> cut seven minutes of it. It's just too long. People aren't going to watch it. Um, I don't think it's, it's just my that. 1950s view of Hollywood. <laughs> and I think there's a, I think there's a happy, a happy medium. But I did, I interviewed Mike Lee for the release of Peterloo, and he said quite a similar thing, which is he said, you know, he went with Amazon because they, um, and he was surprised, not necessarily surprised, but he remarked at how few notes there were. Um, and he said within a traditional studio, he'd, he'd have been expected to cut it down in terms of length, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think we're probably going to get to a, a middle ground somewhere. Um, and the reality is, whichever way your content goes out, whether that's a TV show or a film, um, there's always different constraints. Netflix might have less actual notes for the filmmaker, but you were also going to have to make it appropriate to be binged. Like the, the, every every place has a different set of constraints and every every creator then has to work out what is the deal breaker for them and what isn't the deal breaker for them. And the best... I feel like we've got massively off topic. We have, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I agree with all of that. And uh, I, I, I interviewed Anne Mensa, who is the UK head of Netflix's scripted shows right and she is a brilliant exec she worked on sky she commissioned save Mm. me um from lenny james she literally called up lenny james and said i want you to write a show from your heart Mm. for sky do what the fuck you want to do but she of course she gives notes she absolutely you know and it's like and it's knowing 
I, I think that collaboration, when it's an executive, yes. can be yes. as brilliantly creative in their way mm-hmm. as a creator. And I remember, you know, loads of examples of of um, interviewing people, creatives, who are like, yeah, you know, I don't get many notes, but I get one or two, and I've had some notes that have been changed, transformed the whole thing, and made it m- much much better than it ever was. So yeah. But that's how it should work, isn't it? You know, you like you have a creative partner well, I mean, who looks at things Netflix, differently, that, that, yeah. That happens, then, yeah, but collaborates with you in the development of your project and makes it better. Yeah, there's, and there's a difference between an exec and an editor. You know, Martin Scorsese had Selma, like Tarantino always worked with the same editor mm. um, until they sadly passed away a few years ago. Like those people are important, but the, the exec side is is can be really important as well. And I don't think it's it's that they're just kind of out for the maximum profit. It, they can get you know part of their job is to understand um either you know the audience from a cinema perspective or the people who are using their platform to watch whatever they're going to watch yeah i think maybe you know if you go back the more traditional a lot of these stories come from traditional network television don't they? where the the, the there yeah. is there isn't that sort of joined up creative thinking it is very much we are the business people the we are the creative people and there is no middle ground which is why they sort of scrape against each other so much west wing being a, a prime example but anyway, Matt, I'm not sure we answered your question. I'm not even yeah. honestly sure what your question was at this point. But hope, we have been talking about it for like 50 minutes, by I the way. I hope we, at some point along the way, accidentally answered your question. Uh, if you would like your question broadly ignored on the Pilot TV podcast where we talk about other things, then do feel free to send it in to us at Pilot TV Pod via DM on Twitter or to me at James C. Dyer on whatever platform you so choose. Ah, time now for a short break and a quick message from our sponsor. Right, let's uh, let's kick off now with this week's news. And there's really only one place to start, isn't there, Terry? Fuck me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what? The actual fuck. <laughs> so I'm going to preface this yeah. by saying that the Hollywood Foreign Press, the people who vote for the Golden Globes, I think there are, what, 60, almost 70? No, 87 people. They are journalists um, who vote for the nominations. And this week was the Golden Globe nomination. And pretty much everybody noticed, well, there were quite a few omissions, but there was one particularly egregious and that is the word for it egregious omission I, I think calling it an omission and an oversight is actually being too kind because um i may destroy you and its creator michaela cole and its incredible cast didn't receive a single globe mm. nomination which is utterly remarkable in any category Whatsoever. And just to be clear, Emily in Paris got multiple nominations. Well, and here's the thing, right? I, th- I kind of think two things. Part of me thinks, don't drag Emily into Paris into it because, because I don't like this slagging off one woman's thing when another woman's thing gets shut out. And I agree with you, but... But she literally, right. yes, you're about to say it, aren't you? Go on. Yeah, so the writer of Emily and Perry literally wrote an op-ed on The Guardian saying, what the actual fuck, why have my show been nominated well, and not the Kelly I was just going to say Coles? that before James said it over the woman who was trying to say it, making the point about women. <laughs> that was brilliant. As we enter into parody. <laughs> that was beyond... You were literally 
you're just about to let me say it and then yeah. you just couldn't and you couldn't let yourself so as james just explained um uh the writer one of the writers i should say um because there were quite a few writers one of the few writers of emily in paris um wrote a piece for the guardian for the guardian um opinion column saying it is absolutely ridiculous that emily in paris got nominated and i may destroy you didn't now I, yeah, as I say, part of me is like, it isn't about Emily in Paris. Regardless of Emily in Paris, it should not have been overlooked mm. at all. But I think the point is, there is a feeling that that kind of show, um, uh, primarily about white women, um, which is, even as the writer said herself, they certainly never wrote it with, with awards in mind, that kind of gets all of this award love when something like Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You um, worked on by black creatives about the black experience about you know being a woman who's been traumatized in the way she was especially something so radical that really you know really fucked with genre with um, how trauma's depicted on the screen with narrative conventions I mean there is very little that I May Destroy You didn't challenge, subvert, or completely turn on its head. And I think whether you liked that show or not, and no show is universally loved, I think the craft that went into I May Destroy You and how seismic it is going to be in terms of the progression of television and how it's going to be held in the future just makes it an absolutely insane choice. I think the contrast with Emily in Paris is great, but I think even if Emily in Paris wasn't in there... There is no world I can see in which she doesn't deserve a nomination. The cast, like everybody involved in that show, it is so culturally significant and it is also just brilliantly made television. That is the reality of it. And it was some of the best television of last year. So that's that's basically it in a nutshell, which is what the fuck. And then a few people have said, oh, well, you know, it's not about nominations and sh- and and I'm like, but that lets them off the hook really mm. easily. I'm sure Michaela Cole knows what she made and she's seen the response and the respect she's received from audiences all over the world. But don't let them off the hook that easily because they don't matter, but also they do because it's what the public uses as a yardstick. It's what people point to to say if something's been significant or not. And I cannot see any justification for that whatsoever. I can't. Can you, Boydie? No, there is no justification at all, but I, I will explain it. I, I will say, all I'll say is I know exactly, like, because first of all, as you alluded to, you have to look at the who is who is voting. And the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, not only are there 87 of them, whatever, it's basically like you got the handful of parish council voting for the best TV shows and films of the year. It really is. It's literally that. But these are not TV critics, by the way. These mm. are the Hollywood. I've met some of them. Like if you do a round table, mm. if you're, if yeah. you, if you're yeah. in LA doing yeah. a round table met some, on some show and you've got 10 foreign journalists, yeah, you've got people from... <laughs> We've got people, sorry. Terry's Terry. gesticulations luckily does not make it onto the podcast. Listeners cannot see Terry's gesticulations. But you literally get, with all due respect, to, you know, it's not, they're, it's not because they're foreign that I'm saying this, but you will get a guy from Finland who's writing for Finland's equivalent of, you know, 
um, heat, actually, you know, <laughs> whatever, writing showbiz stories about what goes on in Hollywood. And they yeah. all live, they all based literally in LA and Southern California. It doesn't even include New York-based fucking foreign journalists who write about TV. So it's an unbelievably small group who whose entire life is based around staying in the Hollywood Foreign Press Association so they can vote for the Golden Globes. And yeah. it's a self-perpetuating madness that yeah. this thing has become in any way important, right, culturally insignificant. So most of the nominations, actually, when we get into it, if you, you could get, are, are, are decent. But I do think it's a case of generally following, like, they're watching stuff that they think they'll enjoy and get through. And I think, funnily enough, the James factor, James not wanting to watch I May Destroy because it's about assault and it's a bit grim. They probably all think like that, a lot of them. And <laughs> so it's barely, my fault. Okay, good yeah, to know. it's your fault. It's barely ever been, probably they've barely ever watched it. And they were like, oh no, I think I'm going to watch, you know, The Crown instead, which got the most nominations. Yeah. It was, And of course, f- fine, the thing about Emily and Perry is a total red herring anyway, because it's not even in the same categories. Cause Hollywood, no, it's not. Because no, it's they separate divide into but, comedy and but, drama. But the fact, but just, but my final thing is, so even, so I can completely understand how this has happened. But what is spectacularly fucked up about it is that they haven't been nominated for one. That is what makes it incredible. So you, yeah. So clearly they haven't fucking dealt with it. Is the thing. Well, can we just talk about because you say right, the nominations are all right. Well, let's just look at, for example, (laughs) best television series, limited series, right? Yeah. Which is where I'm. You would expect to find I may destroy you. What we have is normal people. Okay. Yep. Fair. Queen's Gambit. Yep. Yep. Fair. Small Axe. Yep. (laughs) Unorthodox, that's an interesting one. What is that final <laughs> show I see in the list? Yeah. The Undoing. Yeah. yeah. Well, that sums up. They, that exactly, exactly. They would rather have a whale of a time watching that preposterous load of old nonsense which, <laughs> than watch I May Destroy You. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And that is, yeah. And and The Undoing, by the way, loads of nominations. Hugh Grant. I mean, I love him. Yeah. I love yes. him. Yeah. yeah. But, Best performance yeah. for you know, no Papa SEA do, but don't worry, guys, because we've got Hugh Grant hamming his way, <laughs> hamming with a capital H, his way through the undoing. Well, shall I tell you, for me, the biggest, most unbelievable thing, right, is that in performance by an, and I haven't heard anyone mention this, maybe they have, but in performance by an actress in a supporting role in a, in a, in any series. Well, Ruche Opia, who I thought was amazing, is the three. It was the core three, as you say. Mm. Papa Siedu, yeah. Michaela Cole, and Ruche Opia. And Ruche Opia, let's not forget, had some amazing stuff to do in that show, yeah. right? In the in that category, they've only nominated four. They haven't even got a fifth. Oh my so, god! So Carter, <laughs> Julie Garner for Ozark, Julie Garner, Annie Murphy for Shit's Creek, and Cynthia Nixon for Ratchet. Fucking Ratchet, by the way. Which again, we very enjoyable, but a load of old shit. Come on, let's face it. Uh, <laughs> they've only come up with four nominees. They couldn't even stretch to a fifth for Rootopia. I'm like, this is you are taking the piss. It's almost like something has gone wrong. Someone was said, you know, maybe that they like they didn't send the right information or something <laughs> you know uh, it is so ridiculous i mean in a with a uh, get ready for this right best performance by an actor in a supporting role john boyega absolutely for small acts um 
Brendan Gleeson for the Comey rule. I mean, <clears throat> right, Shit's Creek, Jim Parsons for Hollywood, Donald <laughs> Sutherland, the undoing. Donald Sutherland. I mean, I loved him, yeah. Who also hammed his way around town. What? I mean, I yeah. don't, I honestly don't understand. And to your point, Boyd, I'm, you know, maybe they off. Maybe because of the kind of journalism they do, it comes down to the star power oh, God, yeah. of I those mean, things, does, right? Yeah. Which is The Undoing had all of the stars in the world. Um, but I just, I, it it really bothered me because I think... Oh, it's, it's sick. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sick. just, but it also, it kind of, you know, doesn't, it does a, a massive disservice to Michaela Cole and the work she created, but also to television because I don't, honestly... That is that list. I think is in no way representative mm. of the extraordinary year. Because there was no, you know, also no Zendaya for Euphoria. Uh, also, um, justice for Rhea Seahorn again. Yeah. But this is like there's so many omissions. It's so patchy and all focused around these same few really starry, um, not massively high quality in some circumstances shows. It's just, yeah. but you're I mean, right. The Hollywood mad. foreign press, such as our star fuckers, I mean, that is the that is the bottom line, really. And you know that, and, and the, uh, let's riddle the nominations are riddled with examples of that, both film and TV. I mean, let's not even get into the film. I'm sure, you get into the film on the Empire podcast. <laughs> we but, did, you yeah. know. I mean, there there are some some films <laughs> that it's comical, you know, <laughs> because they're because they love yeah rewarding famous people. That's always been what it's about. The Golden Globes. The only for me, the only uh, saving. Well, no, it's not in any way, but. I, I would really have been the idea of Michaela Cole being in that um, room, you know, with the other yeah. with the other greats and of Hollywood would have been brilliant. But of course, that's not going to happen this year because it's going to be done. It's going to be presented by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, by the way, which is good, the only good mm-hmm. thing. They're brilliant on different in LA and New York, and it's going to be a virtual thing like they did with the BAFTA. So, so I feel like I, my immediate reaction was, oh no, I'm robbed of the chance to see Michaela Cole in that environment, which I would have loved. But mm. fuck it, she's she's going to be fine. She's going to win loads of BAFTAs. She's going to be. Loads of M's, yeah. it'll be fine. Yeah. Wards that count. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this we do this shit every... It's like Charlie Brown and the football, isn't it? Every year we go through the same shit. What the fuck is going on with the Golden Globes? But they do this every year. There's yeah. always something. This They're is always one of so the, out of touch. This is, by, as I say, by not giving... By shutting out so completely, <laughs> yeah. it must be the most egregious example in recent history. It absolutely is. But, of course, they did give some nominations for Ted Lasso. So there's uh, there's some there's some good stuff in there for you, Terry. Anyway. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, we've given the Golden Globes far, far, far more oxygen than they deserve already. Uh, so let's press on with other news. And uh, I'm, and let's not go through this line by line. But did anyone watch the uh, Screen Actors Guild nominations came out as well? And I think they were slightly better, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. Slightly. In that, in that I May Destroy You was nominated. Therefore, it's 100% improvement <laughs> yeah. on the Golden Globes. Yeah. God bless the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, they also like Ted Lasso. But let's move on. Let's move on. So, go on, Terry. Other news. Uh, well, other news. Ryan Coogler is working on a Wakanda yes. TV series for Dis- Dis- Disney Plus. Disney Plus. Um, <laughs> Disney Plus. <laughs> I mean, this is the most this is genuinely really exciting you know sometimes in news we go such and such sound <laughs> thing and we're just doing it to fill the minutes really let's be frank because we feel like we should talk about news this 
this is properly exciting stuff. Yeah. So it's a five-year exclusive TV deal with Disney. Um, he won't just be uh, doing Black Panther stuff. The first thing um, they've said he's working on is a drama set in Wakanda. It's all going to be through his company, his production company, Proximity Media. And obviously, you know, everybody's got loads of questions about what happens um, with the death of, of Chadwick Boseman and how that's going to affect um, the stories and Black Panther himself. But I think, and I always go bang on about this, but Ryan Coogler is so exciting and so unique in Hollywood still. And his the way he sees things, the way he told that story made it feel as part of the MCU and also at the same time entirely fresh and exciting and different and authentic and, and you know, telling a proper African story in the way he told it with the cast that he... T- I mean, I, I just think he's an extraordinary filmmaker, honestly, and I cannot wait to see what he does. And it's that dream team of him and Feige and Louis Desp... I can never say that. Louis Despacito and Victoria Alonso, the absolute production dream team. And what, I am going to watch anything he would like to make for us. <laughs> Um, there was a very exciting line of duty uh, uh, news this week. Did you see the press release written yeah. by Ted Hastings? Yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I love fantastic. that, first of all. Um, but within that brilliantly done announcement was the double double news. First of all, that Series 6, which will be arriving soon, um, has a seventh episode, so which yes. is brilliant. Give it, give, bring it on. And when you think about it, I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, first of all, I was like, oh my God, that's mind-blowing, amazing, <laughs> a whole extra hour of them. Um, but of course, most of the series have a feature-length finale. So it's really only actually a kind of an extra half an hour, if mm. unless the seventh episode is featured in as well, which is yet to be confirmed. But that is exciting. And also that they've got a major new cast member, Shalom Brune Franklin, is joining AC12, um, playing DC Chloe Bishop, who will assist our heroes, Kate Fleming, Steve Varner, and Superintendent Hastings in the tricky upcoming case. And the what was exciting was the press release was accompanied by a photo in which she's standing there with those three characters we know and love over the years. So it's like she's become the fourth key member of AC12. And I think it's really brilliant for Gemma Curie to freshen it up like that and just to keep the whole thing because I was talking well the last time we talked about Lionel I was saying how much I admire the fact that it's, it is a formula you know it is a procedure on some level but he keeps it so fresh and he keeps the texture of it so exciting and I think this is another example of how he does that by bringing in a whole new character who's going to be part of AC12 so I think it's really exciting Did either of you watch the teaser for HBO's uh, the Nevers, the now yeah. Joss Whedon free The Nevers. What do you think? Oh, it's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, pretty. it looked lavish and you Didn't know, spectacular. Yeah. I, I was yeah. really there for it. Like, I'm now much more excited about this show. I think because it's had so, a slightly troubled production, I was a little bit dubious about it. But uh, actually, I'm very much here for this. If anyone doesn't know, watch the teaser, obviously. But uh, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> the emergence of The Touched, who are mostly women in Victorian London who develop... Uh, who, touched by what? Touched by powers, Terry. Touched by powers, uh, not by inappropriate men. Uh, no, this is uh, they develop abilities. So think, you know, X Men Victorian class, but with a mainly female cast, and it looked pretty cool. I also love the fact that there's a character called Penance Adair, played by Anne Skelly, and that is a great name. Um, but uh, <laughs> I know I, I love this, and it had it had the vibes of a show that will tide me over until Carnival Row returns, and that's what I can really oh, ask in life. Oh, I can't believe you're still pining for Carnival Row. Oh, I miss Carnival Row. Person. Steampunk yeah. fair is the win. Is Come there on. even is there even a second season on yes. the way? Is Yes, oh, okay. I'm waiting for it. I need my fairies. Give them to me now. <laughs> I need my fairies. <laughs> you are the only person pining for it. That is not 
true. I happen to know for a fact that blood screenwriter Sophie Petzl is also a Carnival uh, Row stan. So, enough. you know, there's two of us. Oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Um, what else is happening? Do you see Mike Flanagan has announced the cast for the Midnight Club? I did, yeah. They're all pretty kind of, you know, not that famous, are they? But yeah. I mean, I'm just <laughs> it's saying. the Langen Camp, boys. All right, the Langen it's Camp, Nancy sorry. from A Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. No, it was... It was uh, it was interesting to see. Admittedly, yeah. it's Heather Langen Camp and some other people you've never heard of, but still, yeah. still. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Slightly more famous people were announced in the cast of um, Stay Close, which is the next Harlan Coburn Netflix um, thriller series. They'd already announced people like Cush Jumbo, James Nesbitt, Richard Armitage, Sarah Parrish. So it was already star-studded in a, in a British kind of way. Eddie Izzard is joining it, Joe Joyner and Andy Osho and Daniel Francis. And uh, I think that's a big cast of excellent people. And you know how much I love Harlan Coburn and those Netflix series. You know what else you love, Boyd? Frasier. And yet... Oh, I know. I was going to mention... I, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. I don't know what I feel about this. It's going to happen. Yeah, they're going to revive Frasier. I mean, I'm, I'm a man who still gets up at 8.30. Well, not get up. I, don't, I get up before 8.30. I still settles <laughs> down for my breakfast every morning pretty much and watches a Frasier double bill on Channel 4. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Do Even you? though I've watched those episodes about 100 times before and I've got the oh, box... Boy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is absolutely true. It's your SVU. Yeah, it is my SVU. And Quite weird, but I like it. Thanks. And um, <laughs> it's no more weird than your SVU. Hold on. I don't, oh yeah. I don't do it anymore. Are you sure? I've grown as a person. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Now, now it's um, two two episodes of Fate the Winks saga when Terry goes to sleep. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so I love Frasier. It's one of my all-time favourites, as anyone who's ever listened to me will know. And you know what? Like, there was an episode this week that was so brilliant. It was a Valentine's episode. It opens with Niles getting into an amazing slapstick set-piece sequence where he ends up setting fire to the sofa and fainting um, while doing some mining. And Frasier going on a date with a woman, and he doesn't know whether it's a date or just a, a business meeting. Uh-huh. Even though it's on Ventus, and that's so brilliantly done, that storyline. Yeah. And it was an amazingly written and performed show. And I'm like, if you bring back the people who worked on it originally, maybe it work. And it is, you know, it is a sitcom, and sitcoms can be revived and they can work brilliantly. So I'm kind of there for it, but they better not fuck it up. They better not focus on and Niles and Daphne, by the way, which ruined the whole thing. So yeah, they've got to do <laughs> they've got to do it properly. I would okay. in fact banish Daphne, frankly, from the whole thing. Sorry to that actress, but I think yeah. Everything gets revived in the end, doesn't it? Every fucking thing. It does. Thing. Uh-huh. It I mean, does. There are no new ideas. Everyone's coming yeah. back. But then equally, I do think pandemic and lockdown, there's something to be said for bringing back comfortingly familiar properties. Mm. So I'm here for it to an extent. Um, <laughs> have you seen that Apple have been splashing more cash around? They brought in Oscar winners Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway to lead a new show called We Crashed. We Crashed is uh, it's based on a podcast i believe and it's about uh, the rise of we work which is one of the world's most valuable startups and they are the narcissists whose chaotic love made it all possible oh yeah that was a big um yeah it's based on a real life drums isn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that'll be another show for the eight people watching F- no that's harsh <laughs> that's harsh everyone should be Actually, I, I stand well. by this i'm i'm a big you know i'm, I'm a staunch defender of apple tv plus because i think they've got tons of great quality stuff on there 
Tons? Would we say yeah, but tons? I, I, okay, look, they've got sea, Terry. All they word? need is sea. If it was called the Sea Channel and it just uh, had sea on it, I'd fucking God. subscribe. So, what um, what is the latest with the morning show? Like, I when are we getting that? That's a good shit? question, Boyd. Do you know? I think I read somewhere that it's wrapped. I think I think hopefully quite soon. Yeah. Oh, God, I, I hope um, so. Yeah, I really I need. I'm so. Same, do you know what? I think I'm going to do a re. I think I'm going to yeah, do a rewatch. I've been thinking of doing a rewatch for ages. Yeah, because mm. I think I slightly. Like when it first started, I didn't appreciate just how much because I, I mean I think it did get better and better, but I by, you know, yeah. but I really want to watch, watch it again. Yeah, it was so good. Let's do it, Boyd. Let's, let's go do back it. Yeah, in. let's do it. Okay. Does this mean that you might consider revisiting <laughs> C as well? Absolutely, no. fucking absolutely not. not okay. no. Absolutely. If, if I want to see a man, a blind man masturbate, it's, it's not the men who masturbate, Terry. It's the women. Okay, if I want to see a woman <laughs> masturbate, there are places I can go for that. But it's an Apple TV. It's an Apple TV Plus. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Can't argue with that. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, Joel Kinnaman has joined the HBO reboot of In Treatment. I'm not sure how I feel about that. But then having said that, I, oh. I've seen some of the Gabriel Byrne in treatment series, but I, I was never a massive fan of it so because I'm not that attached to it one way or the other. Um, I'm sensing that neither of you are particularly bothered either way. <laughs> I think this is a section of news called <laughs> Trying to Fill the Time. All right, all right. James, James says, guys, did you, <laughs> did you hear uh, me and Boyd go... <laughs> right, so if I were to mention that George Clooney is producing a Buck Rogers revival series, you wouldn't care about that either. I mean, that's just mad. It is mad. But, but isn't there two? Isn't there two oh, Buck oh, yeah, Rogers? There's, two, yeah, there's two. more than two because there's a legendary are doing a film. Oh, uh, there's production, more than two. <laughs> George there's Clooney's production company two. is doing a TV show. And there's some squabbling over who owns the rights anyway because, and this is absolutely true, uh, he was kind of royalty free at one point when he was still Anthony Rogers. But now they're claiming oh that he became God. called Buck in a comic strip, and that's the IP that some people own. And they're saying that they only own Buck and the people who've been making under. Oh, do you know what? Let's not even get into Anthony Rogers. <laughs> you can't even be asked I, to get even to the I end don't of care. that sentence. I don't like Buck Rogers. I couldn't give a fuck. However, I didn't like the original Battlestar Galactica and couldn't give a fuck about that. And then the reboot is one of the greatest TV shows ever made, Terry White. So, um, you know, maybe this will be too. Maybe it'll be dark. Maybe it'll be gritty. Maybe Ron D. Moore will come in and mastermind it. Who knows? You know, did, did you ever watch Ron D. Moore's um, For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus? I, did, Apple TV I, Plus I watched Ron the first one and didn't like it. Now, you remember when we when the yeah. channel launched, and I'm the yeah. only one who watched that show? Yeah. I didn't like For All Mankind. Right, well, I know someone who loves it and swears by it and says it's the most underrated and undervalued show, and it's back next week. And we could Is review it? season well, two, we should, yes. Okay, so I watched, I, but then, you know, as we've established, I watched the pilots of both Battlestar Galactica and The West Wing and was kind of like, meh, on them. So I cannot be trusted and my judgment is suspect. So maybe, and I only watched the first episode of For All Mankind, and I was watching it on an evening where I watched the pilots of every single Apple TV show. Maybe yeah. it just didn't sit right with me. Maybe it's fabulous. Maybe I should give it a second yeah, choice. I, I don't I, know. The same thing happened with me. I, I watched it in a glut of Apple TV Plus stuff. Yeah, and, I, um, I was a bit. And after having seen C, you know, what could possibly measure up to that? So it obviously just, just failed by comparison to uh, Baba Voss and Tamakti Jun. Well, we'll see. Yeah, so we'll, we should cover that next week. Yeah. All right, fine, fine. I'll have to catch up. Hopefully, there'll be a really sort of meaty previously on For All Mankind so I can mm. uh, find out what yeah. happened. What else is happening? I will say Hal Holbrook died uh, this week at the age of 95. I think we did we mention this, I think, on the West Wing special. I can't remember, but he obviously played uh, yeah, Albie Duncan in the West Wing. It. No, no. And, uh, and he died in January, uh, which is shame. He's been in so many things going back from, I mean, Christ, he was in. From 
from just from a TV perspective, he was in Sons of Anarchy. He was in oh god, wasn't he in The Sopranos at one point as well? He's been in he's been in ER, Bones, Grains Anatomy. I mean, Hawaii Five O. He was in that as well. Possibly more famous for his film roles, whether it be The Fog or Magnum Force, Great White Hope. But yes, he died at the ripe old age of ninety five. Hal Holbrook. I think that's it for news. Is that it for news? Yes, unless we want this podcast yeah. to finish on Sunday. Yes. <laughs> and it could point. be longer than the West Wing one. And that was like... Yes. <laughs> well, as this podcast does enter its 15th hour, we should probably move on to this week's reviews. And first up, we have Crime Scene Colon, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, or the Cecil Hotel, Cecil. if you're looking for American authenticity. So this is true crime maestro Joe Berlinger's latest and revolves around the eponymous establishment holder of what one must assume is one of the lowest TripAdvisor ratings imaginable. Now, this is a budget hotel in downtown LA that became infamous for a series of deaths, murders, and violence, and famously, the disappearance of college student Elisa Lam. Terry, tell us about this one. So, I mean, everything about this is is at first glance right up my street. So, Netflix series, true crime, talking heads, like kind of questions about tastefulness. <laughs> um, and I watched four episodes of this last night when I should have been sleeping, and it is absolutely <laughs> what we were talking about earlier, which is this is a classic Netflix binge thing where you will not be able to turn it off and i i am not saying necessarily that's a good thing i haven't decided yet if it actually is <laughs> um i felt slightly nauseous when i'd finished um so episode one kind of sets up basically just how fucking weird this century old hotel is the cecil hotel and so it's a place where there have been suicides where there have been murders where there might have been <gasps> ghosts and it like so much in downtown LA it looks on the surface incredible and ornate there's columns there's stained glass the architecture is beautiful I mean I, I read somewhere that it was meant to have inspired season five of, of American mm. Horror Story and inspired uh, Ryan Murphy and you can totally see why the kind of faded stained glamour that hides all of this seediness and dysfunction behind it so as well as a hotel because it's quite a complicated setup which they try and set up which is it's been many things over the years and as well as a hotel it was also a residence for people who were homeless for murderers they kept saying murderers over and over again <laughs> drug addicts prostitutes um they said richard ramirez lived there um who we'll know as the night stalker and somebody actually said oh he didn't prey on people here he just hung out because he fit in. And what you'll hear over and over again through this documentary is quite sensationalist, some may say completely fucking tasteless sound bites. You know, there's a historian, I it said she was a historian, I'm going to take their word for it, who says, this was a place that serial killers let their hair down. And this is the kind of tone you're going to get throughout this show. They interview so many people, the talking heads, and I have to take my hat off for the access because they've got the hotel manager who's this kind of blonde, quite feisty, um, straight-talking woman who says, who actually muses at some point, 
is there a room here that maybe someone hasn't died in? And then pulls us because she can't think of one. And there's local historians who try and give a bit more of a credible context. There are people who used to live in there. There are people who stayed in there. You mentioned some British people at the start of this podcast, James. And there are these two people who live in Britain. One is British and his European girlfriend. And they interview them. And it's very much kind of like their moment of faith. Um, they stayed in this hotel uh, thinking it was a half decent place and then it turned out to be the hotel from hell apparently it is called Hotel Death is one of its nicknames and then what happens is it zeroes in on this one case the vanishing of the title which is from eight years ago which is as you said the disappearance of a 21 year old Canadian called Elisa Lam and this case kind of got loads of international attention when the police trying to get a bit of help because it was you know nobody had any clue where she was or why she'd have disappeared there was no clues no trail they released this very bizarre footage of her in a lift where she seemed to be either hiding from something or running from something or in the throes of some kind of breakdown and that went viral and what it led is to loads of people on the internet dissecting that deconstructing it and they interview some of these people so in the way that that don't fuck from cats kind of interviewed don't, don't people fuck from with cats don't, not, fuck, don't, don't fuck from, from cats, cats. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's a show i'd watch <laughs> um, so they they interviewed these people from the internet who are talking about the conspiracy conspiracy theories and all of this and then from a filmmaking perspective it's quite kind of patchy and all over the place because there's and i, I was thinking of boyd when i was watching this there's this desperately awkward voiceover narration where an actor is reading out the the missing girl's social media posts i mean i i understand their options are limited because you know they do loads and loads and loads of drone shots of the hotel from different from different angles they're clearly struggling with material to necessarily fill the time so for me this is it was massively compelling really gripping i couldn't stop watching it it was one after the other after the other but parts of it are a bit icky i've got to say so it kind of veers between trying to be an interesting social history and there's a there's something really interesting about um skid row which is where the hotel is about that part of LA, about the complete kind of negligence that is showed to the community, the homeless community down there, many of whom have mental health issues, addiction issues. They're basically turfed out from prison and from hospitals onto the streets. There are camps down there where people live for years and years. There's loads of interesting detail about how the police put up barriers to stop them leaving and going out in the rest of LA. But they're left to essentially commit crimes if they want as long as they're against each other they're allowed to engage in prostitution they turn a blind eye to drug dealing it's essentially a no-go area of LA and there's something really interesting in there about gentrification in cities like Los Angeles and you know others London and New York where the kind of method they're going for in terms of dealing with that community is to cut them off and just to ignore them and neglect them but then you keep getting dragged back to this disappearance and they're kind of and the material there is much thinner so you have people from the internet speculating about what might have happened to this girl and you have police i mean literally like a policeman from a movie who leans forward in his chair and is like yeah we had no leads we gotta go look at the footage like such a like some of these characters the hotel manager absolutely like she's off the telly so 
I found it's a bit of an awkward mishmash of stuff, some of which, I'm sorry, does to me feel salacious in terms of speculation about what might have happened to her. There's some lazy assumptions made about, well, the hotel's on Skid Row, so she might have got, you know, kidnapped and murdered by one of these homeless people, like the homeless people down there are just roaming the streets looking for young women to kill. There's lots of kind of lazy assumptions made, I think, but... It is what it is, which is a fairly salacious true crime documentary that has this kind of dressing of social history around it. As I say, that's the stuff I found much more interesting. Some of it, I think, is tonally questionable, is, is the taste is questionable, but it is really, really compelling, even when you feel bad for still watching it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Joe Berlinger, the director, he's kind of become the the true crime specialist, hasn't he? He's kind of so he he did like last year. He not only worked on the conversations with the kid, the Ted Bundy tapes, which was the Netflix um, documentary series. He also directed the drama, extremely wicked, shocking, even and vile, with Zac Efron as Ted Bundy, which I thought was a by and large not very good film, and kind of um, highlighted some of the issues around what he does but he has kind of pioneered the whole genre of making true crime documentaries as cinematic as they possibly can be and he uses every single thing in his arsenal doesn't he every weapon of filmmaking like he, it's all there in this in this particularly in this show like reenactment moments as you say the narration yeah. of the emails and the posts you made on the internet and um actual footage and interviews as you say with people as, as dramatically lit as possible the cops and it's all and it's all very just and and you can't blame him. I mean, that's his job. He's making it as as compelling mm. as it could possibly be. But I did halfway through, you know, watching the first episode, I was like, I'd quite like this to be like a ch- more of a chilled out BBC mm. Two ish style, you know, mm. because the story is so compelling. And as you say, the social history, the setting is so fascinating. I have to admit, is it just me? I did not realise until I watched this that Skid Row was not just a generic term for like it's, a how, it's an actual literal place called skid yeah. row would you like to know a skid row fact boyd yeah go on skid row the term actually comes from skid road and it comes from logging the way loggers used to transport logs down sort of grease Amazing. skids down the oh, road and the people at the bottom used to have to literally just sit and wait to be picked up so wow. it became a kind of slang for people sort of sitting around with nothing to do which became homeless people which is how skid road became skid right. row and then that's right. why well, it yeah. just sounds nothing like to do with the, the band right it just sounds like such an appropriately awful name for the awful place which one bloke describes in the show as the one of the most you know highly criminal focused crime areas in the world is Skid Row mm. in LA. This, this Skid Row in LA, and it has become a generic phrase. We go, I'm going to end up on Skid Row, don't they? I mean, it generally. But all of that stuff, as, as Terry says, the social history stuff is fascinating. So it is. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I can't wait to watch the rest of it. I, I watched two and a half episodes, and there's what six, I think, is there? Are there? Um, so I can't wait to finish it. I'm fascinated by it, and and the footage, the key, the the, the elevator. CCTV footage, mm. which is like how her the last time anyone saw her, and that footage is absolutely fascinating um, as well. So, but I do like it's just it's just one of those things where I just like could have been done more tastefully. But who am I? I don't know. You know, it's it's if you're going to do it, do do it, and it's and it's and it is absolutely as gripping, compelling um, as it could possibly be for me. I'm not going to share what I thought of this because I just don't think that it's particularly helpful. I do not like this type of television. I do not you like. Can't- Anywhere. Say I'm not going to tell you. This is a podcast. 
can. You okay, have to. fine. But I'm just Do saying, it. like, I could. I thought this was it dreadful. Is helpful. Like, I didn't fine. like it. I found it the opposite of compelling. I was so bored. In fact, I only made it three quarters of the way through before I turned it off. Oh, that um, is weird. Has that got anything to do with you not having time to watch it? No, no. I watched this one yesterday. Like, genuinely, no. This this was not a time thing. I just could, it just bored me so much, and and it just made me feel horrible. And it's, there's just I hate these TV shows. And I know you love them, but there's a ghoulish voyeurism to them that I just find deeply unpleasant. And it just the, these this type of television just makes me want to take a shower, and I find them kind of vile. And uh, and equally, just wasn't compelled by it at all either. You know, and and you know, one of you m- mentioned that like you want to see a BBC version of this. Weirdly, <laughs> I would watch that. Like <laughs> like a, a BBC documentary about this. One of you. I might. One of you. One of you people that like this show. <laughs> one of you. <laughs> one of you. One of your lot. Um, but honestly, James, this is ma- this is mad, right? Because I totally get the shower thing. Mm. I'm with like you know. I just spent like 55 minutes saying pretty much the same thing. But <laughs> are you telling me that you didn't find any of it fascinating? I didn't finish any the first episode. The I literally turned wow. it off about 10 minutes from the end because I was like, life's too fucking short for this. <laughs> and I think I already have everything I need from this, which is that I dislike it a lot. But equally, I should point, I'm not saying that this is a particularly bad one of these. I'm just saying I don't like this television mm. at all. It's just did not you, for did me you not watch, any Did level. you not watch Making a Murderer? No, absolutely yeah. not. Okay. No, but again, for the same reason, I, so I don't understand people taking pleasure in that kind of ghoulish voyeurism. I just think it's grim and unpleasant, and I think it speaks to the more base, nasty parts of human nature. Not to point a finger at you two, but you're clearly Amazing. terrible human beings for enjoying Amazing. this. But what um, I, gonna, I, I think because making a murder is one of was one of the Netflix phenomena, right, of our time, and I and I do yeah. think compared to this, I think the directors of that, who interestingly were women, um, and worked on that story for years and years and years before they then put it all together for that series. I think that series is feels so sober I mean at the time people complained about that being a bit melodramatic but it feels so soberly told compared to this This, so I do have issues uh, We, you know There's, Terry and I both have issues yes, but, yes. I, but, but to be bored by the story I find extraordinary I think the story yeah. is I mean that is fascinating I think, I may, I think maybe because it, it switches me off emotionally like right, I disengage yeah, okay. from it because I just Fine. find it so distasteful I think I withdraw from it and can't engage with it but I do find that there's there's it's the, it's that tabloidy aspect of celebration of human misery that, that just runs through this whole genre of television and it just bugs the shit out but of me. it's not i don't think it's celebration i think boy i think when you said ghoulish voyeurism or whatever you said i think that's more to the point i think the the pouring over the details of this poor girl's final minutes and hours is is you know challenging and i think we've but also let's be frank we give ourselves we give ourselves permission in other areas. So think about making a murderer or, you know, um, what's that? Yeah, the podcast that started it all, right? What was it called? Serial, yeah. Yeah, Serial, thank you. We kind of feel more comfortable if it has really high production values and we think it's done in a really classy way yeah. and we give ourselves permission via those things, which are sometimes as simple as filmmaking techniques or the way it's scripted. Or, But actually, it's all really part from and part of the same thing. And as, I think as human beings, we're fascinated by crime and it's part of our kind of fear about the world in which we live in and the things that might happen to us or our families. I think it's part of human nature. But I think where it where it gets challenging is, you know, 
there'll be magazines, for example, about it that everybody goes, oh, mm-hmm. no, they're awful. That's just voyeurism. You shouldn't read those. But it's okay to listen to Serial because yeah, that's right, done yeah. with brilliant production but then, values. But there's gradients, isn't it? Like, like, it's not just production values. Like, Serial came across like investigative journalism trying to shine a light on an important issue. Like Whether it was or wasn't is a whole other thing, but that's certainly how it came across as you were listening to it for the first but time. That, how's that different to this documentary, which is doing, which is investigating? This, this to me, feels more like sensationalising and wallowing in, in these things that are happening and glamorising it and, you know, sort of turning it into spectacle, like turning it into a carnival. But serially spectacle, mm. that is the, the number of people who listen to that, they didn't do that out of the goodness of their heart. That's a, a, a content product that was put out there to get, you know, people listening. Do you know what it's, I mean, though? It's, but it's, it's tonally it's, very, I mean, it is light years away from this in terms of tone, the way serial was put together. But that, and that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that, you get into things like tone and production values to to give yourself the allowance to be able to, to, to engage with these it subjects. But to motivation as well? It's like if you are trying to turn like a horrific tragedy of, you know, this poor girl who's just been into a circus, like, and then as as watching it, you are, you know, a participant in that and you are, set, you know, you, you, you almost become complicit in them doing it. And I think that's what bugs me. And I just thought, I just, I don't want to know. There's an argument, but the only thing that separates it are, 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 tone, are tonal issues, right? Mm-hmm. And there's an argument to be said that actually this approach is more honest about about why we're fascinated by this stuff than the likes of serial with its middle class white woman's raspy voice <laughs> talking us through, you know, what is a, what is a, a tawdry uh, case, which by the way, a lot of people had a lot of issues with. Um, I didn't you know. finish serial either, to be fair. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I stopped but, listening to that as well. Right, right, right. <laughs> but it is, it, the tone is the only difference. So I agree, I agree totally. It's, it's, it's a natural humour. People are fascinated, of course they're fascinated by crime and by murder particularly, and, and, and they always will be. And it's, you can't, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to, to expect us not to, to be interested in that, but all, but first, but going back, so the investigation, which I talked about right at the beginning, is why we're watching, is, is such an interesting culture. So that is, it's mm. almost gone the way where documentaries are now ratcheting up everything and making it more, more extreme, and the storytelling more um, melodramatic, while drama is going the other way and is being all sober about it and is being all very tasteful. <laughs> so it, that is an interesting trend, but I still think it's valid. It's totally valid to make these programs about these stories and to be fascinated by them. I think I think we've just established that I'm just a better person than uh, than both of you, and we can. Uh, oh, we I can, think we can establish that. Hundreds of hundreds of episodes ago. <laughs> uh, t- boy, so this drops on Netflix when Wednesday. Wednesday in its entirety. If you yes. like Terry and Boyd, are a terrible human being and this is available for your entertainment from Wednesday on Netflix. Next up we have Adam Curtis's latest documentary, continuing his message that Western society is so imprisoned by the past that it is failing to conjure a vision for the future. Uh, Can't Get You Out of My Head is a six-part, eight-hour series, inspired in no small part by the rise of populism uh, across the globe over the past five years. Uh, This tries to trace how we as a society have got to where we are today, and Curtis does this by zipping between topics as diverse as the origins of modern conspiracy theories, the roles of drug use, the rise of China, and the development of AI, as well as zooming in on some very personal individual stories as well. Now, (laughs) there's a moment in this show where Curtis talks about how Kerry Thornley ran an experiment through Playboy magazine to expose the absurdity of conspiracy theories, and it was called Operation Mindfuck, which quite frankly would have been a better title for this series. Uh, Boyd, has your brain recovered from this? No, it hasn't, but in a good way. Um, (laughs) 
So yeah, this it's called count, the the full title of this six part series is "Can't Get You Out of My Head: An Emotional History of the Modern World." So we're not dealing in small little ideas here. We're not dealing in you know we're dealing in massive, huge issues, ideas, stories. And I'm fascinated by Adam Curtis. I think so. This is his first big project since uh, hypernormalization which was in 2016 five years ago and that was like a three-hour film that he made for bbc um iplayer which dealt with a lot of similar ideas he's obsessed with power how power is established and clung on to and why people seek power and why people stay in power and the desperate measures they will resort to to stay in power and how the human mind, I guess, he's, talk, he's dealing with, but in, in this series particularly, comes to buy into uh, the power relations of society, the kind of dominant power relations that exist and how we're all as individuals kind of start believing in the bullshit, frankly, that people in power come up with. And I think he does it, and I think he's a unique filmmaker. So if if people haven't seen his stuff before, what he does really is he doesn't film anything new. There's no new footage in any of, of this stuff in all of these eight hours or these six episodes. I mean, he describes them as it is an episodic series. I think it's the first time he's done this. So the stories carry on through the series. They start in episode one and they and they go on and you find out more and more about the individual stories he tells as it goes on. And he cuts between them all, putting the links together. But there's nothing new. There's no new footage. So he just he roots out archive footage, amazing archive footage of like Mount. Tung's wife appearing in these films she made, um, these extraordinary films where she got obsessed with a rival who thought she was undermining her and she obsessively kept returning to that and that ended up being part of the Red Army that ended up bullying and killing and murdering and doing a witch hunt for people who weren't properly revolutionary enough in the Rev Chinese Communist Party, etc. He comes up, finds this footage that tells the stories that he thinks will most relate to his huge big themes of how humanity works and how society works and how conspiracy theories work and it's apps it's so provocative and interesting and interesting is just the lamest word for it it's absolutely i find it completely fascinating and riveting i've watched the first two episodes i can't wait to watch the rest of it and as you say i've got like five more hours of this stuff to go but i think he's kind of a genius because there's no one else doing this he's crafted this unique world for himself this unique genre of documentary and storytelling he uses music incredible music yeah. you know they'll use new order and, and then next it will be frank sinatra and he worked with a lot with you know he's done films before with massive attack and stuff he's really obsessed with finding the right music to match these images and this footage that he finds stories that you just i just don't know there's stuff about jim garris is one of the main stories in this who's the guy who's in jfk and i love jfk jfk oliver stone jfk is one of my favorite films but you watch this and jim garrison that main character played by kevin costner jfk is an absolute fucking bellet to use out. <laughs> I mean, he literally starts seeing um, patterns and conspiracy theories because people live within a few miles of each other in a neighbourhood somewhere, and he puts two and two together, and he thinks, "Oh, that they have all come together to make the conspiracy to kill to kill JFK." And he he draws in, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald and Lee Harvey Oswald's origins, and it's so you learn so much. It's almost overwhelming at times how much information you're trying to consume and ex and, and explain and understand what it all what is it what it's all saying and what it all means 
my I suddenly I was trying to think of a way of explaining why I think this is so important this this series and why I think Adam Curtis is such a brilliant um, figure in 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 work. And by the way, it's on iPlayer. Right? I think you go, well, why isn't it just on BBC Two or BBC One or even BBC Four? And I think he wants the freedom that just being out there on iPlayer, almost with not that much fanfare, gives him because he a lot of this stuff he just makes assertions all the way through. He will say something about a, a person or a, or a story or society, and you're like, well, where's the proof of that? He will just say it, and you just kind of like have to accept it, go along with it, and have to accept that he's done the research and that's what he thinks he's going to tell it. So it's full of assertions, not really backed up factually. I have to say that. You just have, you either accept that or yeah, not, right? you got to go so, with but that. But I think the BBC iPlay thing gives him the freedom to do all that and to say stuff that's quite within the confines of this thing, controversial. But my, all, my, my summary of why I think it's so important, an example, I think, of what he's doing is, last week I watched this amazing thing on with Anderson Cooper on CNN, I don't know if you heard about it, where he did a, 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 a kind of little report, not a big report, on the QAnon thing, right? This is, at the moment, there's this there's this uh, woman, American female senator who's a Q, who thinks, yeah. believes in all those conspiracy theories and thinks that, you know, 9-11 didn't happen and all oh, that. Oh, she's a nutter. She's a nutter, right. But so Alice, Anderson Cooper found someone who believed, who was an absolute QAnon fundamentalist believer. He believed that Jewish people like Anderson Cooper were, were feasting on babies' blood. And space and, lasers. And space lasers and all of that. He believed in this stuff and he interviewed him and he's there sitting there telling Anderson Cooper, yes, I thought you were a cannibal feasting on the blood of babies. And Anderson Cooper's like, why me? Like what? And he's trying to, and, and he, there's no explanation for it. The guy cannot, it's like, how can you get to that point in your mind where you buy into this ludicrous conspiracy theory invented by right-wing lunatics? And this series... Can't get you out of my head. That's what it's trying to do. It's trying to yeah. explain, sometimes down to how the neurons, neurology works and how artificial intelligence works and how the internet works and, and how viral this stuff is, these thoughts and these ideas and these theories are. And I think it's so important because that's what it's doing. And what more? And what, how much more important can it be to try and understand these yeah. fuckers who are believing this stuff and who end up assaulting the capital and possibly trying to kill AOC. You know, it's yeah, like that, exactly. for me, it's that level of importance. Now, whether it succeeds or not, finally, who can say? But I think it's trying, and I think it's incredible that it's trying. But I think, I, I agree with you 100%. I think this is, oh, I mean, conspiracy theories are not new, and this series makes it absolutely clear these have been around for a very long time. The fact that Operation Mindfuck gave birth to this crazy made-up story of the Illuminati, an 18th century organization from Bavaria. And this is still something that wingnut conspiracy theorists bang on about, even though it was made up to prove the conspiracy theories are absurd. But, you know, so this is like the plague of the modern era at the moment, you know, fake news and whatnot. And I almost think it's so important that I kind of wish this admittedly phenomenally constructed series wasn't so opaque because it's a lot and it's quite hard to follow like we, we were talking about this beforehand you were like oh you've got to be focusing on this you can't be doing other things at the same time i would argue you could be focusing on this 100 percent and still be entirely lost by the time you're halfway through the first episode because it skips around like some kind of cranked up fruit fly like it's going from Mao Zedong and then we're at the Playboy Mansion and then there's someone doing some weird interpretative dance and then we're deep diving down to this sort of abusive photographer and his wife and it's like you're going everywhere and he does pull these threads together but it takes you a while to work out what on earth he's trying to do and it's quite you get whiplash watching this like 
like this is an episode, the first episode airs with a skinhead bar fight morphing into a perfume advert. And it's like, what? I, it, I felt like, you know, like a clockwork orange. I felt like this was some weird brainwashing experiment. Like, I, and mm. it's weird that it's about essentially brainwashing and fake news. And it, that's what it feels like watching it. And it's partly due to the construction, which as you say, is, is created with this sort of, you know, tapestry of archive footage that he's unearthed. But that and the crazy music and the quick cuts and the images and the changes of tone and pace and subject all the time make it quite difficult i think to pull a clear through line now to be fair i watched the first episode which is like an hour and a half and there is eight hours of this and maybe it does become more clear as it goes along but i do feel like his style doesn't lend itself to the sort of the easy distillation of information and i you know again not to go back to this but what i quite want is to watch the three hour really concise incredibly clear version of this that conveys that information in a way that's maybe more digestible because it's such an important message at the heart of this that said this, this i mean he's a genius this is incredible television but it is a lot you see i could not disagree more <laughs> on it being hard to follow and I, what i loved was it should be impenetrable he's taking in basically the history of the modern world and as you said telling multiple stories from multiple decades and countries and at the same time he distills entire stories that would fill an entire book into a couple of lines of narration and I just think I don't even know how you would practically do that. It is, you know, it's it's um, it's an intellectual piece of television in so much as you, you can't see it on Twitter at the same time. But I think he <laughs> makes it astonishingly simple and straightforward. And I think, you know, I had to give up looking for loads of thread being pulled together mm. and there being an answer because what I realised is that, you know, for all the different things going on in this in this um, show, whatever we're calling it, it's just the world is, isn't working. The world is fucked. Yes. And he's going to tell you why the mm. world is fucked, but not how we get out of it, right? Because it, what he shows is the systems are broken, equality is completely fucked everybody's angry and he's essentially going right i'm going to tell you how we got here and so you do go from you know moscow in the 90s to his mara's mad wife uh jan hmm. ching you've got the i mean but i learned loads mm, of stuff so the kenyan camps that were used by the british and there's a quote in there saying the british were trying to manipulate the african minds and ended up with mass torture and killing mm. as the british lost control you've got the immigrants from the empire coming to the uk who'd been told it was their homeland and then having an awful reaction when they got here and they talk about finding a, a sad and frightened A hostile country, environment, if you will. A hostile environment. It's like, and everything suddenly, the penny drops gradually as you go. And I like the fact he doesn't entirely spoon feed you. And you're and honestly, the way he makes this case, even, you know, the conspiracy theories about communism in 1950s white suburban America, how the kind of boredom and isolation of those people led to these mad conspiracies, the rise of individualism, it's all in there. And I just think it's incredible. And it's so resonant right now as for, for all the reasons Boyce said, but also, you know, COVID, like he was already making this when the first mm. reports of COVID happened. Yeah, you know, we're we're dealing with disinformation and cons mad conspiracy theories and I just I just found this such 
a head melt mm. in a really good way. Mm. I loved every second of it. I am desperate to watch the entire thing. I found it it taught me so much. It illuminated so much, but it, he's very careful to tell you what happened without too much editorializing where you're being led to a certain conclusion. But the the clarity around mm. his 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 journalism and his storytelling, I think, is incredible. I was like, how you've made this digestible in these, you know, 75 minutes, I think that first one was, it doesn't even feel long enough. When Boyd said 75 minutes, I was like, for <laughs> fuck's sake, I've got a magazine going to press. I'm dead tired. I haven't seen my baby. And then I was like, I want 75 more minutes immediately. <laughs> I just think this is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And I just think as many people as possible should watch it. And I get your point about if it was slightly easier, then maybe it'd have a broader audience. But I think he's boiled it down to what you can boil it down to while still being a credible, intelligent piece of television. Just, I love this. Loved it. Loved that. La, 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 I, I do agree it. with you that it's incredible. And also, I learned an awful lot. And I and I think it's it just feels so... And you think you know everything. So that's pretty incredible. <laughs> Thank you, <Mike. laughs> I do think... <laughs> I do think it's a really important piece of television. And I think the use of archive footage really hits home in a way that maybe it wouldn't have done otherwise. When you see people in that time, frankly, being massive racist and dealing with sort of like the, you know, the post-colonial Britain, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's mm. it's a lot to take in and it's really important stuff. And I think it's also importantly a part of history that a lot of people either don't know or have conveniently forgotten uh, mm. in the, you know, certainly Britain's legacy when we were a colonial power and how that has brought us to where we are now and how we have still yet to undo so many of the kind of uh, systems and networks that sort of facilitate this mindset in people. And I think that's really at the heart of this. And it's showing, it's that classic thing, isn't it? Those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. And his whole thing is that we're in this cycle of inequality because we're not engaging with what happened in the past and trying to do something different in the future. I think my only issue with this is he tells so many stories simultaneously that, you know, speaking to clarity, I found that this, to me, at least lacked a certain amount of clarity because I felt like I was wading through lots of brilliant genius interesting stuff to try and find the threads and connect them together from the first episode i think i think that's more about how you you're consuming patient. it yeah you have yeah. to relax yeah. and let it just Relaxed. yeah It'll let it wash over you <laughs> yeah well in a way but certainly yeah. the imagery right because the imagery will often apart from the when he has that absolute incredible archive footage of of people being interviewed and, and, and some being outright racist or people yeah. being interviewed about their, their their experiences there's the douglas home douglas hume um story which is incredible um and that, so the but a lot of the imagery is just designed to kind of establish almost like the tone and the mm. and the kind of direction that he's and the flow of his idea rather than you know a specific literal thing to show something that has happened that he's commenting on but so i think you do have to let it flow over to some extent and, and honestly i think you absolutely understand what he's getting at put it that way you know in terms of the big mm. picture via these incredible stories that he's found to illustrate the points and it's just yeah i, I think it, i agree i think it's just like it's you know it's 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 absolutely required, should be required viewing for as many people as possible. To, and I think it helps. I, I found it quite comforting. In, not comforting is maybe the wrong word, but I've, I found myself, I've always, I find it, I find religious people, frankly, bewildering. And I never understood. <laughs> I genuinely have a problem understanding how you can believe in stuff that you, like that, right? But I think this kind of program, I think this program does help me understand it. And I think that's... That's all that we can expect from something, really. That's a pretty huge achievement, I think. Well, can't get you out of my head. Lands on iPlayer on Thursday, the 11th of February.
Finally this week, and I will just point out that uh, when we finished what we'd been watching after like three minutes, I was like, oh, great, this is going to be a really quick edit. I'm really pleased. We're just skipping through this week. <laughs> Fuck me, what is happening? Anyway, we have another show to review. Uh, finally this week, it is Soulmates. This is an anthology series created by Brett Goldstein and William Bridges, and it is set a little over a decade in the future. And you can tell that because everyone's phones are just pieces of perspex, like in The Expanse. Uh, but in this <laughs> near future, a company called Soul Connects has developed a technique whereby they can pinpoint a person's ideal partner with 100% accuracy, raising all manner of questions about predestination and what makes a good relationship. Uh, this aired in the US on AMC back in October, but comes to Amazon here in the UK this week. Terry, was this the one for you? So this show is going to be compared to a couple of things um, and probably was when it aired in the States last October, which is Black Mirror is definitely mm -hmm. up there, as is um, Modern Love, which was obviously the New York Times um, column that was made into also an Amazon TV show. And just like that, it's an anthology series. I've watched the first episode um as you said by brett goldstein who we know has the amazing um films to, what, is it films to be ted <laughs> i was getting to ted lasso in a minute what is it films to be buried with films to die yeah. with, films to be buried with uh obviously did super bob and also ted lasso lasso whatever that show is that james really likes um, <laughs> And, and everyone but, else but, really but likes. I but I can't use it as a stick to beat you with, Boydie, because I like you. Um, so, <laughs> and he's um, he's co-created this with with um, Will Bridges, who also did Super Bob with him. Now it is it is a I suppose a conceit that has I feel like been explored in in smaller ways elsewhere, um, which is about the nature of. Uh, the further we get into the future and there's technology for pretty much everything and there's ways to optimize your life and use data to make the very best decisions, what would happen if you could uh, identify your soulmate through a test? Now, one of my issues with the show is you don't understand. So I had so many questions about the test and you don't know, certainly in the first episode, what the test entails so there's a bit where she's kind of in a machine that's almost like she's at the opticians which is a brilliant like one month early one month later one month earlier thing that i was thinking of boyd with <laughs> i desperately wanted to know how they worked this out and maybe i got distracted by the wrong thing but i was very very keen to understand the test um but basically once you've taken the test capital t capital t um <laughs> the person is either in the system and you essentially have a match like you're on Tinder or they're not. So I can't, the concept's uh, compelling, but it is it is very Black Mirror. And I, I, I'm sure they hate that comparison. I'm sure they're like, oh, for fuck's sake, but it's there because it's true. And they said, you know, the reason they made an anthology is because every single person, you know, has a different story, a different version of what they think love is. But there are some universal ideas explored here, which is, you know, what is a soul? Soulmate, what makes a soulmate? Um, is the person you love the most in the world the soulmate? And more to the point, what happens is 
your soulmate's a dick or your soul you're not in love in romantic love with your soulmate will they be the person who is destined to make you the happiest that is essentially what's at the nub of this and so um and if such a test existed would you take the test is kind of the central question in it um episode one is about a married couple a long married couple that couple is sarah snook um who's amazing who's in succession was in pieces of a woman Kingsley Benadir, who we know better from the OA, um, One Night in Miami. They've been married a long time, teenage sweethearts or college sweethearts, um, got a couple of kids. But what becomes apparent very quickly is they haven't taken the test. They met the traditional way. They have um, her brother, who has just met somebody via the test after being a loser for years. And amazing Dolly Wells is in this, is her friend Jen who basically upends her 18-year marriage after she takes the test and discovers her soulmate is an Argentinian stranger. So you've got this kind of central conceit, which is she's been with the husband for years and years and years, but it's always that thing, am I missing something because I haven't taken the test? He's just my college sweetheart. Like I've seen two people in my life, their life massively transformed by taking the test. Should I take it? And there's kind of a hint she finds him a bit boring because there's one bit where he like talks too much about work, but that's pretty much the only thing wrong with them. And she, and Sarah is really our eyes and our questions in this, which is you know um, she's kind of exploring all the uh, all the good bits about taking that test, but also the Pandora's box it will open. So I'm, I'm obviously not going to spoil this at all, but I suppose I I found the idea really interesting. I really believed in those two as a couple. I thought it dipped into some really interesting things. Apparently in later episodes, they kind of dip into other genres and other kind of existential ideas about love. You know, I think at a later episode, there's one which is what if your soulmate is a bad person? What does that mean that you're matched with them? There's another one with Charlie Heaton from it, who uh, is in it as a, as a guy who joins a cult. Um, so there's lots of different explorations of love within different genres. But I suppose there wasn't anything, and this is a quibble, and I'm not sure how big it is. When you watch Black Mirror, and I couldn't help comparing it, there's always kind of slight narrative upends or twists or things that kind of surprise you. This for me, followed quite a, a typical narrative and I wasn't particularly surprised by anything that happened. I found it quite touching and quite interesting and, and I enjoyed it and I'm definitely going to keep watching it, but I'll be interested to see if the later episodes go into any more interesting places. I think this one was really about setting the premise of what it's investigating, but there wasn't particularly any moments where I was really um, surprised by what happened. It's it's lovely and there's real warmth in this and some really interesting ideas. And it did remind me of Modern Love in that way, in terms of um, some of the better episodes of Modern Love, for sure. So I'm going to keep watching it. I wasn't completely blown away, but I really, really liked it. This, for me, echoed more Modern Love than it did Black Mirror, even mm. though the setup mm. is very, very Black Mirror. Just because I loved, what I loved about Modern Love was the way that, you know, human entanglement and sort of mating rituals and whatnot, but how people interact and the bonds between them are so 
endlessly varied and complex and mm. it's essentially at the core of the human condition uh, that you know and also i'm a great big soppy romantic sometimes i love that series because <laughs> yes, of it and this is almost the opposite of that it's the same level of interest but you know from an emotional standpoint it's the opposite of warm and fuzzy because it's pulling at the seams because the idea is that this test has come along where a lot of people are already in committed relationships so do you then take the test only to clearly find out the person you're with is not your quote unquote soulmate? Mm. And I know what you're saying that, that I, but I think they deliberately don't go into the process of it. There's a, a line early on where they say, after the discovery of the soul mm. particle. So I think their whole thing is it and doesn't no, matter. It's almost that's incidental. It does matter. I don't think it, it does, does because, because no, I don't think because it does. Is it by, I do, but I do because is it biology? Is it, is it chemistry? No, is but it's it, fictional. Is it it's, it's, a, it's basically saying that everyone has a soul and so each of you has another half of soul, which is obviously nonsense because well, they're but using but that as a device. what makes a soul? This is, this is, I understand it's a device. I understand all of that. But what is... That's that's what's interesting to me. What is a soul? Therefore, what is a soul made? I just thought it was a really interesting... I thought it was an interesting idea that there is a one for you. And what if you meet the one for you? And as you say, they're a massive bellend. And the questions here... And I, I found this first episode like heartbreaking in places, just watching these people like, tearing their lives apart to do what this computer said. And yeah, it's a commentary on modern, commoditized, AI-driven dating algorithms, which is how most people end up finding people these days the swipe-a-thon that is Tinder or Hinge or Bumble or whatever else you want to do that serves you up matches based on, you know, the attractiveness quotient that it's given you or your swiping techniques or whatever other arcane formula it's used to find you a match. And this like, takes it to the extreme where there is one person for you, one person only. You know, what happens if your soulmate is dead? You know, I don't know if that gets explored. Like, how does that yes, work? Yes, no, it does. That's it. it, ah. the, cult, the, it the, the, um, yeah. the Charlie Heaton episode is all cult about one. that. Well, quite. You know, that's, I mean, it's fascinating to me. The only, my only issue with this, and weirdly I had more of a problem with this than I did with uh, with uh, Modern Romance, is that it's an anthology show and I would rather stay with one story here and, and see where it went. Like, I almost feel like sort of, pulled out of Sarah Snook and Kingsley Benedict's story. Like, I want more of that. Like I don't necessarily want to move on at this stage. But I think that <laughs> probably talks speaks more to me and my viewing habits than yeah. it does anything else. Because I, you know, I need more of their story. I don't I'm not ready to to let them go at this stage. But I thought, you know, it's very slick, it's very well made. Uh, I don't think it will be for everyone. But what I thought of this, I thought it's very thought provoking. And I think it's a it's it's an issue that's quite relevant to the time we live in. Uh, and you know, yes, you're right, this could have just been one episode of Black Mirror absolutely but i think it's nice sometimes to sort of delve into these things in depth especially when it is a subject that's so integral to who we are as a species i am excited by the anthology i mm. have to say and i i can be on the fence about it but i i felt like that story was well done and 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 contained and i'm i'm really excited to see the different variants on because uh, as they say like love as you've just said love is universal mm. but everybody's experience of it is entirely different i'm excited to see the different yeah. ways they kind yeah. of approach it I, I think it's such a brilliant idea it's such a great idea and, and and i know why and i know we want to understand the the technical side of how they find <laughs> well, sorry, mate. well not but, we just but me. i think but i think to be honest i mean they kind of touch upon it every now and then a bit but i think in, in from what the other episodes i've seen i've seen a couple more episodes but i think it's one of those things that so the more you inter interrogate it the less convincing it's going to be i think <laughs> they just have to mm. steer clear a little bit of it you know because 
because otherwise, once you get into that, it becomes a science fiction thing that you know has get caught up in the in in making that feel real. But but I think because I think actually this first episode, I think is so. I, I just on the level of forget the whole concept, that brilliant concept of a game changing thing that's going to change the whole world of relationships by having the knowledge that you can find your soulmate. Forgetting that, this first episode I think is a really really brilliant and an, an analysis of long term relationships and marriage mm. and the stresses and strains of your the children and you know one of the one or other of those people involved in this thing being slightly less enamored at any given moment with the relationship than the other and finding the other a little bit boring and there's the scene where they go to the mm. restaurant i thought it was bleak when they try you know yeah. really looking forward to having yes. a date night together date night. Got, oh my god i thought oh i've seen so many you know, I've, I've seen that so often in restaurants where i see two but they're not talking to each other and it's um it makes me really sad but powerfully so and powerful observations and help no end by the way i mean i think the writing was great in this first episode but Sarah Snook and Kingsley yeah. Benadir, fucking both absolutely yeah. brilliant. So believable as a couple and so believable the tensions between them. So I think uh, for me, it's like I'm really excited. I've, I've seen the episode you're talking about, the Charlie Heaton one, which is about the cult and it was all about what happens when- Have you seen that? Yeah, and it's great. Is it good? Really good. And um, there's an episode with Bill Skarsgård and Nathan Stewart Jarrett, two guys who meet when one of them is on the way to meet their soulmate. And that's like a kind of riotous kind of, it's a bit of a romp and it ends up being like a kind of racist against time thing and the passport is lost and it's like a kind of um, odyssey kind of thing the the tonal shifts between them i think are going to make are going to be make it fascinating i think it's a sort of strong enough it's already been recommissioned for a second season quite rightly and i think it's such a strong idea and there's so many ramifications and it is so thought-provoking they've already said i think brett goldstein i read said is they've got ideas for four series and 40 episodes no wonder because i think it's so strong a, a notion um that i'm really excited by that being a thing that is gonna and i think you know i think there's a bit of a flavor at the moment for anthology series and i'm not convinced mm. necessarily that that some of them are strong enough. I actually thought the modern romance, a lot of them, too many of them were a bit weak and a bit, you know, not quite as good as other words. I think this is going to be one of the better ones. And I have really high hopes that it's going to carry on going for, for ages yet. And I think I think this first episode is great. I really liked it. I, I just, I just, I love the idea that it's taking to the extreme. The fact that they've already said the way technology has influenced human coupling has fundamentally changed the way we look for a prospective partner. Like, yeah. you know, to go back to, you know, even before people traveled as much where you'd end up with, you know, whoever you quite like the look of in your little village, because these are the only people that you encountered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then as people traveled more than, you know, the pool of people they drew from increased. And now, you know, with apps and stuff, your pool has been increased to every fucking one ever anywhere. And so people, People's, what people look for and people are more discerning and people are more picky and you know frankly it makes people neurotic and I think this is on the one hand taking it even further but also making it so much simpler where it's like there is one person and one person only and that is what it is and it's what how technology I think fundamentally alters how we you know as a sort of coupling species interact with each other but anyway uh, <laughs> Soulmates comes to Amazon Prime Video on Monday today the 8th of February also out this week is a glut of of procedurals, if that is your bag. If we didn't put you off procedurals for life with our earlier diatribes, uh, Chicago Med, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, and frankly, anything else Dick Wolf has pulled out of his ass recently will be coming back 
on Friday, February the 12th. Uh, they, they confirm all three of them are on Sky Witness at 8, 9, and 10 p.m. You can have a Chicago Dick Wolf triple bill if you so desire. Seal Team is coming to Sky One on Wednesday at 9 p.m. Uh, if you enjoy a bit of David Boreanaz with an assault rifle, and who doesn't? Uh, Boyd, anything else people should be aware of? Yeah, there's a water percent. And I think sometimes water percent stuff gets a little bit taken for granted because there's a lot of it. I mean, you know, Channel 4 acquires a lot of foreign language shows and um, they often put on they'll put on the opening episode and then the rest of it's fellows as a box set. And they've done that with this, which is a series called Deliver Us. It arrived yesterday, Sunday. They showed it on Channel 4, the first episode, and it's available as a box set. I thought it was really strong. It's a Danish drama about... I mean, the first scene is a teenage boy who's kind of, on his birthday, I think, frolicking around on his bicycle and he gets run over but you don't see it you don't see what's happened to him and it turns out this other young guy who's a hated figure in the local community may or may not have deliberately killed him you don't know and certainly and it's kind of like a community challenged by one bullying possibly psychotic individual and it's fascinating I really beautifully made you expect I, I really want to see the rest of it so that deliver us on um, it's all on all four um, and I think there's one other show but I can't remember what it was <laughs> there you go Okay, great. And hmm. what is our pick of the week? Oh, uh, oh, easy. Can't get you out of my head. Yeah, yeah easy. Yeah, I think easy. it probably is. That's fair but I say. love Soulmates as well. Right. Well, that is it for this week's incredibly overlong show. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, please do head over to as many podcast providers as time permits and leave us a five-star rating. And why not follow us on social media at James C. Dyer, at Terry underscore White, and at Boyd Hilton. Do keep an eye out for our Mammoth West Wing special episode that should be dropping into your feed at some point later this week. Uh, if you've not had a chance to finish the series yet, then I suggest a focused effort to binge your way through all the seasons so that you can listen to that the second it arrives. After that, we'll be back in your ears with the regular show next Monday, where we'll be reviewing another trio of shows that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association enjoyed more <laughs> than I May Destroy You. Pilot out. <laughs> <laughs>